that. I just like if somebody just told me I have a bunch of tea that's going bad, it'd be like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Re- I haven't really. I I think I've had like dip a tea bag in boiling water tea like once, maybe like <laughs> wow. twice in my life. It's not really that much of a thing here. Sure. Really. Sure. It's such a big coffee culture here that nobody right. ever really like does like you, tea. Yeah, oh, you're not much like, of a coffee guy either, though, right? No, but if like, but I've probably had coffee like, sure, twenty to like forty <laughs> times in my life just for like. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had a cup of coffee. Welcome to Can I Kick It? This is a podcast about film festivals. My name is Jesse Catherine Weber, and I'm joined by... Andy Gramuga. Emilio Diaz. Uh, we're going to be joined by Cullen a little later in the episode as well. And, and some special guests. That's right. They talk about uh, the man who wasn't there in Mulholland Drive. Uh, a great conversation that has Spicy already one. been recorded. Um... But, for now, we have, as we're in the lead-up to Cannes, we have more to say about Cannes. This is probably going to be the case until it happens that stuff's going to keep coming out. You know, we still don't have a jury. We, It's possible by the time this episode is being released that we have the rest of the official selection, but we sure. do not have that as we're recording. Uh, but we do have uh, Critics Week and Directors Fortnite, the two autonomous sections, as well as uh, not the closing film, but the last screening. Uh, slightly ominous. Sure. Yeah. Is that the distinction? That is what <laughs> they are referring to uh, Elemental as. Uh, the Pixar sure. film is the last screening, which they... Certainly, the the closing film has been less of an event the last sure. several years. I feel like there was a year not too long ago where they were just like, ah, uh, we're just going to show the Palm d'Or winner again, and that's going to be the closing film. They might have done that a few times. And then a lot of them have just been uh, much like last year's uh, opening film. Uh, just like French movies that no one cares about. Um, don't they? Do they do the the thing that TIFF does, where like the they'll they show the winner immediately after it's announced? Like you can right. That was like what yeah. the that was the what what it's been sometimes. It, it, I think there was oh, that, and that was the closing. That was not yes, separate. Not from the closing yes. That it has okay, been done sure. like that. I think it even there sure. have been. I think it even like literally has been like you don't have to leave the room. Like you just stay in that sure. room and they show the movie and that's the closing. Yeah, film. that is that. 
Yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is what, what what I've heard from people who were at sure. the award ceremony okay. or at award ceremony. Right. It's just like they you sit in the theater and you watch the ceremony and then the, right and the two and a half like, hour award ceremony that you have to watch the two hour and forty like, minute. If you stay, if triangle gonna, of sadness. We're gonna play <laughs> Triangle of Sadness now. If you want to stay here and watch Triangle of Sadness, sure, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't remember how many times that just was the closing film. They had one last year. I couldn't tell you what it was. So perhaps that's why this has to not be called the closing film because uh, right. that's been uh, a somewhat ignominious distinction in recent years. Uh, but yeah, I did also think it was funny that uh, given that I have not heard of the two people who are in the lead roles in the, you know, main cast of the film. Uh, the, right. the the French dub, which is, I guess, they might show both, but they're showing the French dub, which stars uh, Adele Exarchopoulos and Vincent Lacoste, which I guess I don't sure. have a great idea of what those people's place is in the French industry. <laughs> Though they, they... I feel like they both yeah. have César nominations. So they're both, like, famous. Uh, sure. Yeah, I guess I... I is the movie gonna show in English, I assume? Or is it gonna show in I mean, they, they, like, talked about the, the French dub in the... Uh in the press release so it might be both but it definitely sounds like at least some screenings will be that french dub right wow yeah i'm looking i I have not assuming all isn't it just gonna be one screening probably i guess if it's the last screening that that might be it yeah Yeah. if it's the last day because the thing about the last day is that the awards happen at like 5 p.m. So there isn't really right. like that much time for like a glad unless you're gonna do like a glitzy premiere at 1 p.m. in the day. Sure. Time. Yeah. I mean, it might be. It could be that like there'll be some, uh, you know, one of the smaller theaters. They'll just be like, oh, also here's the English version. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I did. I hadn't I'm... seen that uh, Joe Para is in the. The regular yeah, version. The only people I've heard of in this movie are Joe Para, Wendy McClendon Covey, and Catherine O'Hara. Yes. All the other people are those are, people are I haven't heard of. those are the people who were in the cast list that can mention that can had that I had heard of. I wasn't sure. If, sure. You know, sometimes it's just like, oh, you know, I, you know, Bill Hader might just like be in it, and he shows up in the right. credits, and you're like, although he's oh, apparently yeah. on bad terms with Pixar right now. Oh, he's not oh, right. They're not paying. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. If that's all I had to say about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we I. There's been a lot. We've talked about Pixar movies at Cannes before in our Cannes blockbusters uh-huh. lineup. So it's like you know they they have leaned a little more on the DreamWorks of it all, but you know the Pixar is not like unusual for them to go to. Yeah. So this all. I mean, it, it was yeah. funny to see in the list of uh, Pixar movies that have premiered at Cannes, they listed Soul because that was all you know the like can label thing that they did in 2020. Uh, Soul sure. is included. It's like, I guess you can say that sure. if you want. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so we have these two 
autonomous sections, which to yes. maybe explain what they are. International Critics Week is uh, specifically for uh, first and second features. There are sometimes, like, names that are familiar. Certainly, like, if there's an right. American film, there's often actors that you know or like sometimes a movie directed by an actor the jesse eisenberg movie was a special screening last year uh but this year it really is just uh there are movies that sound interesting but nothing that yeah i, I think there's, there's maybe no a few like kind of yeah. known french actors in some of these but for the most part it is just like there's not no one in any of these that people are gonna have heard of uh, which is, I, I feel like, uh, is partially maybe because uh, Uncertain Regard has become, has started to function a lot more like that in the last few years. It, in the past, has been like, there's some movies that are from newer directors, but then some that are more just like, ah, this didn't quite make it into competition, we'll throw it on certain regard, which I think I talked about in the last episode, has been less the case the last three or four years. And, like, if you, you know, the Wikipedia article has what is eligible for the camera d'or, so what the first films are, and it's, like, almost half of Uncertain Regard. Uh, so these are movies that conceivably in the past might have been more open to Critics Week, though. Critics Week's a pretty small section. It's uh, seven movies in their competition and then four special screenings. Right. But then the other... I imagine... Right. It must be hard to find, like, screens <laughs> during camp. Like, sure. You know, I assume <laughs> there must just be the... I know directors for it. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't happen also, at also the Palais, I don't think. Director's Fortnite, those movies screen at, like, the basement of a Hilton hotel. Right. Sure. That makes it's sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can put up a screen anywhere. It's yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the thing about... So the, the Then the thing that we have is that Director's Fortnite, we talked about uh, Paolo Moretti, who had, I think, maybe programmed three or four Director's Fortnites that I think pretty much everyone agreed were pretty good sections, uh, fairly successful. Right. Uh, There's was... been some buzzy stuff out of Director's Fortnite. Yeah, like this, certainly. Um, One Fine Morning was there last year, yeah, yeah. right? And then, um, you know, he's done a... The, he... uh, Souvenir Part 2, I think, was in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they've had A24 movies a lot of the time. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, I think pretty successful. He did, you know, people were like, he did a good job, and then was pushed out. For somewhat unclear reasons, I heard it maybe had something to do with him not programming enough French movies, though if you look at what is in there this year, it's like, you know, there's four or five, which I would imagine is similar to what it was under him. But anyway, we talked about that, like, they put out not necessarily their job description, but we saw, like, what they were looking for, and they were like, we want someone to come in with a pitch who has a specific idea, and we were like, that's interesting for something that's, like, been around such a long time and seems to be successful. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Jillian Rail, who they brought in 
does seem to have that. He did an interview with Screen Daily, and this is definitely a lower-profile section than we've had the last few years, though there are famous directors in it. But we'll see how the movies end up being. But, like, I was somewhat impressed with uh, just, like, the interview and get, that he gave, and it does seem that he has a clear vision of, like, he was saying that, like, he doesn't want to be a dumping ground for just, like, stuff that doesn't get into competition, which is interesting, because I... That does make me wonder if part of the reason the official selection wasn't complete when it was announced was that Fermo was, like... Because they do talk. These, these sections run sure. independently, but... You know, I think they've all said that, like, they get it's along. Frank, and they, right, they get along, they talk. Uh, that, like, he was somewhat aware, like, oh, there's gonna be stuff that maybe in the past would have gotten in directors Fortnite and might be expecting to that I will have to do some damage control of, like, they might have said no to Can Premiere a week ago, but now they'll be like, uh... So, um, but anyway, and then he was also talking about, like, I don't want to just be, like, basing my stuff off of, like, my, my programming off of what are the things that big sales companies are pushing to me, what are the things that have gotten funding, and so he was talking about, like, he what you know, beyond just taking submissions, he was, like, traveling a bunch and going to uh, meet directors to see their films, so... It is interesting, certainly, and I think this is, as I said, like, not as high-profile a selection as if you look at the last few years. Like, you don't have that sort of big A24 director, though there are American directors, uh, but, you know, like, he did get Hong Sang-soo, who's, like, very much a blue chip, could be in a competition somewhere, has been in competition at Cannes, also had a movie uh, three months ago or whatever. No, less. Berlin was two months ago. I guess it will have been three months uh, in our yeah. day. So back already. Maybe we're in another uh, three-movie year. There are a few uh, famous French directors. Michel Gondry is back for the first time in a while with a fiction feature uh cedric mm -hmm. khan is like a actor director who uh i you know i haven't seen any of his movies but i feel like has movie he has had movies longer ago that are like well liked by american critics and then more recently has fallen into just like ah this is some french movie that comes out in france and no one ever sees it um, and I guess Bertrand Mendico, also, uh, director of the Harry Fruit movie. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we, as far as, like, you know, probably the thing that excites me most is, uh, Sean Price Williams' directorial debut, uh, which was written by Nick Pinkerton, and I think they'd been talking for a while about making it. I think they were they were saying right before the pandemic started that they were close, and then uh, there hadn't been much about it for a while. Uh, but I became aware last year that it had st 
started shooting, and it sounds like since, like, 2021, they've just kind of been slowly shooting it, uh, and it has certainly an interesting cast, uh, it's, uh, it's called, uh, The Sweet East is the name of the movie, um, and yeah, it stars, uh, Talia Ryder from... Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, who I know, I think was in something at Sundance last year, but I am uh, certainly happy to see her in something big. She was quite good in that, I thought. Um, and then, yeah, Jacob Elordi is in it. Iota Beery is in it. Uh, I'm trying to actually pull this up and uh, had not known that yeah, Sean Price Williams, for people who don't know, is uh, has been a uh, cinematographer for a very long time. Worked with the Softie Brothers, worked with uh, Alex Ross Perry, Abel Ferrara more recently. Uh, I did not. I I pulled up his IMDb and did not more realize he what. <clears throat> more on Abel Ferrara later. That's true. That's true. Um. Yeah, I I pulled up his IMDb page because obviously he's been working on that, so he has not uh, been working as a DP as much lately, though I did see that uh, he shot the Kristen Stewart Boy Genius music video uh, earlier this year, which is funny. Uh, But finally, with the uh, cast list pulled up, we also have, of course... uh, Simon Rex and Jeremy O'Harris are both in it. Uh, that's right, Jeremy O'Harris. Yeah, remember. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. Um, it's gonna be. Yeah, it's, gonna be it's quite an interesting cast. Uh, the the lead singer <laughs> of the Butthole Surfers is in it, I believe. Uh, Did Reesh... you see Alex Ross Perry's like Instagram story about this movie. I didn't. No. I I I can't say I look at Instagram. Uh. It was just, like, a picture of the poster, and then he, him posting, like, I got a chance to see this last year. Mm-hmm. It's very crazy. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. Love it or hate it. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's uh, interesting. Sounds like he might have hated it. I don't know. That's speculative. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, I know, it, I know they were shooting in Baltimore at one point. Uh, okay, wait, uh, to get the exact phrasing to not misquote a past guest of ours, uh-huh. it's sure. Sweet East with then the picture of Talia Ryder, directed and shot by Sean Price Williams, premiering at Cannes, director's Fortnite exclamation point. Amazing cast, insane and ridiculous, never been anything quite like it, love it or hate it. All that right. is the entirety of it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm certainly excited for this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what else? Uh, Joanna Arno is another American director who's in competition who I have not seen anything by, but uh, I, know, I know has worked with, like, is a New York director, I think, who has worked with people I'm aware of. And there's someone, is also an actor, is in Chained for Life, that movie, a few years ago, uh, Aaron Schimberg. Uh, and there, there's someone in this movie that I've heard of, I feel like. Um, oh, yeah, uh, Michael Cyril Creighton is in it. Uh, oh. The movie is called The Feeling That the Time for Doing <clears throat> Something Has Passed. 
Shout out to my best day ever fans. Sure. So yeah, sure. it's it's certainly an interesting uh, group so of people, if not as famous as you mentioned this interview earlier, and you sure. said you basically gave a couple of quotes about what he said he didn't want Dirk his Fortnite to be. What did he? What did he say he wanted? It to right. Be? I mean, this is what I said. This is this is what I was trying to get at. He was talking about how like. He basically wanted it to be, like, it sounded like basically wanted it to have a clearer, uh, curatorial stance than most sections come, than, you know, most film festivals have, which is where the, like, I'm gonna go different places and meet directors and see movies that are not, like, in the system already. So basically, like, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work, but just, like, you're right that it is a little bit uh, a stance that is developed in opposition to how most things work, but, like, I think that's fine because there's, like, such a clear way that festivals work that... I sort of get what he's saying, where it's, like, he wants it... He wants the the programming to be more reflective of a voice and of a taste Mm -hmm. than just, like, the sorts of movies that usually get in here are the sorts of things that we're going to be looking at. Right. I guess the reason I... It's like, in one way, that's exciting. That's like, hey, listen, go shoot your shot, do whatever you want to do. It's important to have a voice, and it's important for the people behind the section to be, mm-hmm. like, passionate about the movies in order to, like communicate like what these sorts of movies are going to be and why people should check them out in opposition to competition it is disappointing because it does seem like people are unhappy with Fromo generally of what he's programming sure yes so it's like there is an entire class of movie that like as he said like if, if right. this are movies that aren't making it into competition that i'm like but those are probably good movies that sure people want to see so there should be somewhere where those movies are playing i mean that somewhere may just have to be not the Cannes film festival which is fine uh for people who won't be at the Cannes film festival anyway you know like if this is a boon for locarno say then like i think that's fine uh they had a good edition last year and i think that is uh you know those are uh, in- also people with interesting curatorial voices. There is certainly also, like, doing this is a risk. If he's not good at it, it's not going to work, and he's just going to, like, get fired in a few years. And I also do wonder if, like, this being his first year is, you know, maybe it's a bit of a mission statement, and maybe next year will be closer to the status quo, less like, oh, we're just going to reject a bunch of big directors and you know when when there's uh the the way he tried to phrase it was that like they weren't necessarily saying no to movies that they didn't like they just weren't giving those movies priority in a way that would have happened at the past in the past uh but yeah i mean i don't know we we will see what it how this kind of ripples through the rest of the year starting with what the additions to the lineup look like 
and then continuing with uh yeah what festivals look like the rest of the year like you know does you know if it ends up just meaning that like stuff premieres at tiff that isn't a good yeah. fit for that and gets ignored then like sure that though you know even those movies can do san sebastian afterwards and i think that's a perfectly fine platform in some cases though does not yeah, have I mean, press attending be, in the way these other festivals do that was gonna be my uh, like uh <laughs> my red like based on nothing prediction is uh tiff is gonna have more good movies at it probably because there are just gonna be more movies that more good movies that haven't premiered anywhere because i think there is a let's talk specifically about like the a24 things i think sure. those movies are of a tier where they're like would those movies aren't going to go to like Locarno? Um, so it's like I don't know. Like maybe they will. Aaron Schimberg could go to who, who we just I mentioned guess. could go to Locarno. Jane Schoenbrunn could go to Locarno. Like I don't know if it's likely. I don't know if that's something A twenty four would want to do. They have been somewhat hesitant to. Uh, uh, just, like, travel internationally with their films. I know that happened with Venice a few years ago. I almost think the A24 stuff is more likely to just filter... Because, like, TIFF is a weird fit for a lot of those movies as well, and I wonder if that doesn't just filter to A24 being like, well, I guess we'll wait till Sundance next year on some of these. Maybe. I guess I'm just, it's, it's just interesting because it's, I guess in the world of today's film festivals, it's like almost interesting to think about a place like Cannes. And even though I know that Directors Fortnite is technically not part of the same programming uh -huh. as Cannes, sort of like almost seeding ground, I guess, is would be a way to describe yes. it. I guess being like, we don't need everything we can get right and i will you know i would also say that it is it's weird timing that like as uncertain regard continues to dig into there's not going to be that many established filmmakers to have directors fortnite also going oh we aren't gonna have that many established filmmakers either you know like if in a couple years it means that there's 15 movies in Cannes premiere instead of five maybe that's also fine though I don't know that might just get to like there's too much stuff and the stuff that isn't the stuff you know the stuff that is uncertain regard and directors fortnight and critics week just gets even more ignored so yeah, yeah. I don't know because I, I know there was some talk of like well directors fortnight seems to be focus on smaller stuff and more like first features and stuff like that yeah that's also what Uncertain Regard does yeah it's also kind of what Critics Week is doing so I do wonder if they will there will be some level of just like we need to establish what these things are uh -huh. more differently yeah there might be it's you know we'll see how this year goes if it yeah. feels weird there could certainly be some course correction in the future mm -hmm. uh but yeah i don't know anyone we did also get a tribeca lineup 
uh, yesterday. Yeah, the Waitress Pro Shot is premiering at the <laughs> at the Tribeca Festival. You keep saying Pro Shot, Andy. What, what what's Pro Shot? A pro- professionally shot uh, capture of a of a film of a stage production. I think they as opposed should, to a boot. As I was going to say, I think they should premiere bootlegs at the Tribeca Festival. It's part Film of bootleg Festival. culture. Yeah, is, is referring to things as pro shots. Sure. Um, okay. Yes. Look for an episode on that coming soon. A pro, are pro shots like uh, how much production goes into? Uh, I mean, I usually like they'll capture sometimes. Like I think a, a very standard thing is they'll like they'll run the show. Like the the team will like watch the show a bunch a bunch the the film capture team they'll um they'll often do like one or two performances with an audience and then they'll do I think usually like one or maybe two or just do isolated moments without an audience where they can get like close ups or or different angles or stuff that an audience being there precludes them from doing and then they'll stitch it all together so usually it takes like a week or so I think to 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 capture a show like that okay I was just I guess I was just wondering if it's like. If it's like a Spike Lee, uh, Passing Strange, situation. Passing Strange or American Utopia situation, where it's like, well, right. they talk to the people and we conceived it and we thought about it, like that sort of work, or is it just like we yeah. put three cameras down and we now just that like, like, find the shots, like they'll do that for like the Lincoln Center archives, where it's right. just like it's not ever going to be commercially available. But usually, if there there's an eye towards having it commercially available, they'll they'll put yeah that that level of work into it. Um, anyway. Yeah, it's not, yeah. like, what they would show if they were live-streaming it. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's certainly not the, uh, like, what? Andrew Budyalski has a new movie, sure. uh, this year. There, you know, Tribeca is always, like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff from, uh, directed by actors which like you know is fine right. some of those movies are the ray romano movie is like out in my local indie this this week uh sure that, finally that uh, last year it's always a good sign when a movie is coming out at the same time as the uh lineup for the next the... edition of the festival it premiered at is being announced yeah. Uh, which, of course, is also true of Showing Up, which is a, an excellent film that I finally got to see. Uh, but anyway, you know, uh, it, and yeah, like, those those movies are, like, you know, actors can be interesting people. Some of them do develop interesting mm-hmm. ideas about how to make a movie. Uh, but it did feel, looking at this lineup, like, there's so many. Like, even more than usual for Tribeca. Um... Including, I think there's one that is uh, a Chelsea Peretti movie that it sounds like is, it, I think it's called, like, First Time Female Director or something that it sounds like is uh-huh. about that. That she directed or yes, that she is? that she starring. directed okay. uh, sure. and is and is in, I think. I think Amy Poehler's sure. in it, too. Um, right? But, yeah, there's, like, a... There's also, there were a number of baseball movies, there's a couple of documentaries, but then there's also uh, a David Duchovny, again, movie that he directed, where he's, like, playing uh, a beer guy at Yankees Stadium, whose dad is a Red Sox fan. I I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on. When is Tribeca this year? It's in June. That's their new... because it's, like, jumped around right. the well, so... a few times. It, the, with the pandemic. I mean, it was just they they had the uh, they had the they moved it forwards to June. I think I I think they just didn't do one in 
2020 and then 2021 did a sure. digital festival in June and then we're like actually we're just going to stay here. Um sure. which, you know, there is there's like more Berlin stuff than there often is, I feel like. Like uh I guess part of that is that it, they're just like getting stuff that is coming out during the summer because like the Petzold, sure. I, I don't think we've talked about, uh, but the Christian Petzold film is coming out in July. Uh, so they have that and they, they if Blackberry, I think is already out by then. So probably not that, but I feel like there were maybe one yes. or two things more that just like can't play New York film festival. So may as well do sure. something. Yeah. Uh, with that, uh, I guess we can, uh, cut to the next segment. our main segment. Yep. Yeah. See you in a second. All right. And we are back, uh, and we are joined by filmmakers and co-hosts of the To the White Sea podcast, uh, Jordan Fish and Ray Tintori. Woo! Hi, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Right Thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. Very happy to be here. Excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I, I've been enjoying the podcast. It is just like a great... It is always great to think about the Cohen brothers. Uh, yeah. And now today to talk about them. Because uh, we're going to be talking about the two movies that tied for Best Director at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, which are The Man Who Wasn't There and Mulholland Drive. So maybe, Colin, do you want to set the stage for uh, the 2001 Cannes Film Festival with the uh, the great Mark Perrinson quote that you found? Well, <laughs> uh, yes, let me actually uh, dig that up real quick. Uh, um, Sorry the... to put you on the spot. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's an IndieWire article from the time where uh, Mark Perrinson of Cinemascope, I believe? Um, no, yeah. No. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's the Cinemascope guy. Yeah, also right. now uh, working with Carlos Chatrian at the Berlin Film Festival. Right. Um, uh, but it, it was the, he. There, were, I was looking sort of at the reaction of um, like what people were feeling about Cannes at the time. It was a pretty strong lineup. I was looking at it. Yeah. Uh, In retrospect, certainly. You're like, we've got yeah, these yeah. two movies, which I would imagine we all like or love. We've got, yes, yeah. you know, Millennium I mean, Mambo. Mulholland Drive is like yeah. a canonical masterpiece. Right. Yeah, it's in and... the top ten of the sight and sound list. Yeah. Uh, no, but you've yeah. you got, like, In Praise of Love, you have uh, Shohei Amemura's last feature, and then, of course, Shrek, all in competition. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Moulin Rouge opens the festival. So what Perrinson is saying is that uh, the question of, like, the slate of the lineup of everything isn't whether or not he liked or disliked anything, but rather what he was able to keep down, because I guess (laughs) he thought everything was pretty low rent. (laughs) And uh, he's like, uh, you know... Man who wasn't there is a bit of a stale offering. Uh, uh, he, I think he like really hated. Um, I mean, he he hated Moulin Rouge. He called uh, the piano teacher like disgusting. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes, he he was not a fan of anything going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, Thierry Fromo's first year as artistic director. Uh, obviously, we talk about Thierry a lot on this. 
mm-hmm. podcast. Still in there. place. It's been yeah, God. Yeah. So. Well, you know who knows? He's now announced a new lineup. Uh, we don't know it yet, but maybe it went so poorly that he's already <laughs> been ousted. There's immediate calls for his <laughs> resignation. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. like, actually, the only movie is the Bywen and Johnny Depp movie. That's the only one. That, would, I, that would do it, I think. <laughs> yeah. He's like, we're going to program it 20 times in a row, fuckers. And then l- drop the mic. Yeah. Can I ask a question uh, of, Please? of mm-hmm. the con uh, experts? Um, how often sure. is there a tie? Um, somewhat frequently. The rule yeah, is that it, there can be one tie a year. This is a, it's a good question because the rules were actually solidified around like ties and how many awards one movie can win because of the year in which Barton Fink won like five different awards, including the Palm. Yeah. And so I know because of that, the technical rules, which they are allowed to break, it, including in this case, is that each movie can win one award or they can win a second award, but it has to be an acting award or jury prize or the screenplay. And then in theory, those four categories are also the ones in which a tie is allowed, but director, for whatever reason, seems to be the exception they're most willing to make. Like I know in 2016, well, last, right? last, last year it was maybe the, was it director last year? Was it because it was Lucas Don't and Denis, right? No, that was the Grand Denis? Prix, which is also Grand Prix. that is also a category they're not supposed to do it in. Uh, the last right. time there was a director tie, it was Olivier Assayas and Christian Munju for uh, graduation and personal shopper. Yeah, and I don't yeah. know if there's one in between uh, 2001 and 2016 off the top of my head. Yeah, so it is like a. So there, there you know. is a tie most years. I think uh, 2021, where they had more movies because of the backlog, they let him do two ties. But yeah, most years there is a tie. It is in director pretty rarely. Right. And I feel like, speaking from like our own experience doing like mock juries and stuff, it is often a good way of like if passions are high and people are uh-huh. split in a movie a good way to sort of, like, make sure everyone can live with the results is to, like, be like, well, we could do the tie here and, like, sort of, like, float that as, like, a political move. So that's why I feel like it happens with some frequency in at least one of the categories. Yeah, I would say most often when there's a tie, it's because half of the people in the room like one of those movies and dislike it, and half of the people are the other way around. Yeah. There's a, um, there was something about this year I was reading where, um, they, uh, uh, they, the Moretti film won the Frappresi Prize and the Palm, (laughs) and there's also the discussion of, uh, the piano teacher winning actor, actress, and Grand Prix. Right. Which um, was by that there was point a, not allowed, but they did it anyway, I guess. Yes. Uh, well, it, this is because when they were voting for Palm, apparently it came down to the wire so much that it was like uh, The Sun's Room, which is the nanny sure. movie that wins the Palm Door, won by like one vote, basically. That's funny uh, over that the they piano voted. Teacher. I wonder if they tell yeah, them, yeah. like, at a certain point, if you can't come to you consensus, have to vote. you have to vote. I mean, yeah. 
Right. You well, I mean, like, apparently it was contentious. And like, apparently, Liv Ullman was like, "We're at each like, other's throats." Right. right. Like, it is like we've we've mocked out this process, but we've not done it with nine people. Which every yeah, every person you throw in is gonna make it more of a pain in the ass. Right. Yeah. I bet and like, you know it's probably like an exponential thing where like five of us can do it in three hours. Nine people take like three days. Right. Well, the stakes yeah. are especially, especially the stakes are higher when you, like, they have the right. jury sit on the stage and, like, That's applaud every award yeah. and everyone and it comes also, up and, like, you know, yeah. matters what movie wins, that director will probably right. get more money to make their next movie or yeah. be yeah. able to make a next movie. Yeah. So did we say who the jury was for this? I don't think no. we have yet, did we? We have no. not yet. So, yeah. so yeah. go ahead. Oh, yeah. I'm just so reading off of Cullen's prepared notes. Uh, Jodie Foster was originally the president, but because Panic Room ran over, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. they she had to step down. So they brought in Liv Ullman. Yeah. Which, Old like, standby. It is like, you know, we, you know, everyone likes Jodie Foster, but that does feel like sure. an upgrade in some ways, you know. Got, <laughs> you know, Jodie Foster. I don't know about that. I, like, Jodie Foster, I guess it's not an upgrade in terms of, like, star power necessarily, which is what sure. they're going for the jury, but you're, you know, you're getting at that point someone who is, like, a legend as opposed to like yes, oh yeah. this is a very respected oscar winning actor sure especially like within the festival scene yeah like yeah so but, and then the rest yeah. of the jury we have mimo calopresti uh charlotte gainsburg terry gilliam the rascal uh matthew kasovitz the, ra- the other <laughs> rascal <laughs> yeah, uh, Russell Jr., <laughs> Sandrine Kiberlane, uh, Philippe Labro, Julia Ormond, uh, Mofita Tlatli, uh, and Edward Yang. Yeah, and what a what an image to conjure of Edward Yang watching Shrek. <laughs> One of the last things he did, not to be Jesus morbid, <laughs> but he did like he five years. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I had the timeline. Off. Made, I had the timeline so off. he didn't make another movie, but yeah, he he lived. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm complaining with. <laughs> Shrek took it all out of. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a depleting film. Did we ever Boy, find out it. if he got to see uh, Shrek Two, or was that not? Ooh, I mean, he, so when did he, he could he, have Shrek Two because also, also, also it can also, yeah, in, also competition. in competition. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah there he, are the interesting parallels between those two competitions, where it's like the Coens are there with Lady Killers. <laughs> There's Shrek 2. Oh, Shrek 2 played Khan. Yeah, yeah both, of them, both. both of them were in Khan. He could have even wow. seen Shrek 3 if he really wanted to. He, he lived another month after Shrek 3 came right. out. So if that's was, one of the last you know, movies If he, he was really Colin. into them, certainly guess, yeah. he could have been like, I gotta, I gotta get to like, that. He was like, the is ogre. Yeah. Also, I don't know <laughs> who we're talking about, by the way. Edward Yang, director of <laughs> Edward Yang, director of Yi Yi Yi. Oh, okay. day. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, a, a strong jury for a strong lineup, yep. in my opinion. Yeah, Edward um, Yang, he's also, like, filling that sort of slot they often have of, like, oh, this was a big movie that was in competition last year, getting that director well, sure, in. I mean, the, the year uh, after yeah. Lynch is the president. Yep, exactly. What are the president's um, duties? Are they sworn like, in? They kind of, no, they just kind <laughs> of like they're like the moderator and like right. a, you and, know and they. The head. I think they break ties like 
you know, when Spike Lee did it, yeah, when Spike Lee did it, they were pretty clear of like, oh yeah, we all loved working with Spike Lee. He set a great tone for us. So yeah, it's like, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's just the most, uh, respected person in that can world does it and they have slightly more power. Yeah, they're either a moderator or a dictator that everybody Right, hates. that's and the other really thing. It really just depends on the person. Yeah, we, we're excited to see what happens with Ruben Oslin. Of course. Year, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Um, I think before we get into the discussion of the movies, we do usually ask our guests, like, what sure. is their history with film festivals? And I feel like you two might have an interesting perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you have more of a story than other. I think Ray, you have some. You have some good stories. Yeah, I'm mean, definitely like from the filmmaking side. I was a juror once uh, in mm-hmm. a, the Glasgow Film Festival, and that was a really interesting wow. experience. Which I feel like definitely what you were saying before about the tie being an option that's really useful. Like my experience was, we you know they tried to make an eclectic jury. We had really different tastes. The stuff that mm-hmm. um, some of us were more into, like you know, uh, an emotional payoff and other people were like really uh, activated by avant-garde stuff. And mm-hmm. and we ended up picking something that was kind of like a documentary that was also had some avant-garde elements and it felt like we met in the middle mm-hmm. on a thing that no one was super, I mean, it was a really good movie, but it wasn't, we all had these things that right. we were so passionate about. Right. So it wasn't yeah. it was number one, which yeah, really, so I saw that yeah. what happens. Yeah. I saw that happen from inside the jury and that, that definitely from then on, I was always like, okay, that's, that's how like certain films don't understand exactly why it's winning the big award. You know, that sure. that's why that happens. Yeah. But then like, also, you know, the, yeah. the Cohen brothers, when they were the president, they got to be co-presidents and that jury gave the, uh, the Palme d'Or to Jacques Odiard's film Deepon, which is, I think this is the first time someone is thinking about Deepon since that movie came out. Yeah. Um, I had amazing experiences too, just as a filmmaker at film festivals. Um, yeah. And the, you know, really great experiences like uh, with uh, a short film, like with like short films like Death of Tin Man, Glory at Sea at like Sundance and South by Southwest. And then uh, we all went, like everyone who worked on Beasts of Southern Wild went to mm-hmm. Sundance when that was playing there. And that was a really right. amazing experience. Um, but the, one time I was playing Tin Man at New York Film Festival and the cab driver took me to the Lincoln Center. No, look, the Lincoln Tunnel instead of Lincoln Center. <laughs> and I was 40 minutes late and Abel Ferrar was furious at me. No! And it was the scariest thing in the world. He was screaming at me and mm-hmm. Grace Jones was stra- standing right next to him just laughing at him screaming at me. It was like, we'll remember that forever. Yeah, so That's thank- like a fever dream. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> What was his, do you remember anything he said? He was just, he couldn't believe that I was late. He was just so, <laughs> he just couldn't believe how unprofessional I was. Yeah. I imagine him going like, you don't do that, man. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. It was yeah. like that. It was exactly mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. The, uh, the one director. <laughs> only laughing is so scary. <laughs> so stressful. The one director I can remember uh, having been late uh, to a Q&A at a film festival I was at was uh, Joe Swanberg. So that maybe is, uh, that's what you would expect there. I think uh, 
Ken, it was one of the movies Ken Osborne was in. He uh, he just kind of stretched for ten minutes. Sure. <laughs> I would certainly like Abel Ferrara yeah. in a festival environment is like the one person I don't want to be pissed off at. Me. Yeah. Definitely have Abel Ferrara nightmares that come up every once in a while because of, <laughs> because of that experience. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Dave. Uh, I saw um, Abel Ferrara um, do a Q and A for a screening of King of New York, um, and someone was talking about the movie in the Q and A, and he said um, the the red haired guy, and he was just like David Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> oh wait, no, no, sorry, I got that wrong. Um, no, not David Caruso. Uh, yeah, from King of New York. Oh, was it? Oh, was it David Caruso with the red hair? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David yeah. Caruso yeah. famously yeah, yeah, has yeah. red hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I, I'm sorry. I fucked up the <laughs> anecdote by, by uh, half stepping on the, on the laugh. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's what I. That's my Abel Ferrara memory. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's experience with Abel Ferrara. I mean, we should maybe start asking that more often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he's... he's a lot more I'm sure he'll be uh, out and about. Uh, Padre Pio's uh, yeah. coming out next month, I think. On the Padre Pio circuit, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> they're really, yeah, they're yeah. really getting him in every media. I mean, he just, uh, does, you know, even when he doesn't have a movie, he just, like, shows up to screenings in New York. Yeah. So, yes, I think he'll probably be on the circuit when he does have one. So yeah, I don't know. Do we want to start getting into these two specific movies? I mean, I don't know. Maybe sure. we can uh, take the the and that is presented by your podcast, or is that I don't know how much you've yes. talked about yet, because uh, I know you're very ahead in recording that this movie, The Man Who Wasn't There, is what got made in the aftermath of To the White Sea, which is the movie that you are uh, reading the screenplay on for your podcast not getting made is this is the first thing that happens afterward, correct? I don't think that's true. It's not. Okay. No. Um, I believe this was made while they were prepping for that. Okay. And, um, and the, the movie that came after the production fell apart onto the White Sea was uh, Lady Killers. Uh, okay, sorry, sorry. So no, it was not Lady Killers. It was Intolerable been... Cruelty, okay, which is a so script they... that they kind of had on the shelf, had okay. been sold, and uh, mm-hmm. other people had rewritten. And then they kind of took it out of a drawer and essentially went with their mm-hmm. draft. Okay, yeah, that makes and, and that's interesting. My At least my take on where this film fits in in their career right now is that it's they've just made... Uh, oh brother, where art? Oh, I can mm-hmm. never say this title. Oh brother, where art thou? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was such a, it was such a huge success. Not just the yeah. the film, but the soundtrack. Right. They just huge made so right much there. money yes. on this thing. It was a it was a genuine cultural phenomena. Yeah. And yeah. it's like they're on their way because of all that. You know, but then it's like it's Fargo. It's big. It's the run that they're on, mm-hmm. and they want to make this enormously ambitious James Dickey adaptation. And I feel like the man who wasn't there is them in this extremely confident place, making a smaller film mm-hmm. with, I mean, the one thing I just, Deacon says that this is the film where it's most like what they imagined in their head and what ended up on the screen mm-hmm. is the most one-to-one. Hmm. He's like, that's the most successful we ever were as collaborative filmmakers together is sure, man who wasn't there. So I feel like they did exactly what they wanted to do with this film and they're on their way to 
be that confident onto yeah. the onto the white sea and then it doesn't happen yeah, right. yeah. and then I mean, you I, have that little yeah, this is weird like, period yeah before for sure. you know, and, until yeah. uh no country so it doesn't you know doesn't last that long but <laughs> maybe it felt like an eternity for some people um yeah but <laughs> i i do want to say like um i think another thing that's interesting just coming off of a brother and i think it's something that's like almost invisible by virtue of what I'm about to say. But like, I think the experience that they had with the DI on O Brother mm-hmm. um, was like very sort of expressive and, and, and experimental uh, in terms of like making a film that was completely finished digitally and every frame of it yeah, was, uh-huh. was graded. And then I think when they went into um, uh, man who wasn't there, my understanding of it is that um I think they tried to shoot it on black and white, um, but then mm-hmm. eventually settled on a um, on a working model where they shot it in color mm-hmm. and then really leaned into that digital finishing process to get it exactly where they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that it's black and white is like a much more invisible version of that same process. And mm. I think it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. I think it resulted in a film that's, that's but... visually. Yeah, I do yeah. think it's like I, I was thinking about it because I yeah, I knew about the digital intermediary stuff with uh, Oh Brother and was definitely like thinking while I was rewatching it this time like oh yeah this does not look like a movie that they would have made five years before this. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll ask: Do either of you remember the first time you saw the man who wasn't there? you i want to say it was on dvd probably at my friend uh danny mendelson's house uh who i just went uh, i just went to his seder uh and we were big uh coen brothers fans and all sorts of types mm-hmm. of movies fans definitely like um like big recipients of the dvd wave of the yeah. of the 2000s and um, mm-hmm. um i don't remember what i thought of it though honestly i don't remember my initial yeah. reaction um yeah. it's a subtle flavor for sure yeah 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 i these two films are so locked in my mind together because i, I saw them they're both like i didn't really see that many films this year um i was 18 I was doing a gap year between mm-hmm. high school and college mm-hmm. and uh so i saw them both in like really weird like I, I saw a man who wasn't there in turin italy like on a day where we saw the shroud of turin and then went and saw the man who wasn't wow. there. That was our, like the pairing, you know. Uh, and uh, I was way too young for it at eighteen. I think the main thing I remember is like, yeah. uh, I'm going to take this hair and throw it in the dirt. I'm yes. going to mingle it with common house dirt. Like that uh-huh. really, that resonated. Like I, for some reason, I remember like me and my friends were like uh, woof. If everyone knows what woofing is, we were woofing in Italy, and we'd be like on this like farm saying that to each other all the time because it's just like i think that was our one big takeaway from the film is like that 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 scene was amazing well you're probably doing mm-hmm. a lot of actions that resembled that uh what he said he was gonna do if you were out on a farm for sure <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah did you ever bury hair have i ever buried hair <laughs> that's an interesting were question just... um <laughs> have i ever buried hair well according to uh uh, Jewish halacha, you should uh, you should bury your fingernail clippings. Oh, um, so, Whoa, I think and, I've heard that. 
Um, although <laughs> in a, in modern times, you would just flush it down the toilet. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's what I yeah. That's what I do. I hope that someone wow. is just gagging. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like <laughs> really very specific. No, how do you like... guys feel about the shots of the hair in the film? Did anyone have like a bad reaction to that? No. 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 Okay. no. I I I mean, it's one of those. I guess I've never considered that that would be a like a trigger for somebody who's like mm-hmm. the hair specifically because I guess like it gets everywhere. It is like a thing. Like right. the thought of like hair in your mouth is a very bad feeling. Yeah. Sure. Um. I mean, I'll. I guess I'll say that I'm almost all the way on the opposite end, where I like will often watch a hair cutting <laughs> ASMR mm-hmm. video to fall asleep. Yeah, yeah, so sure. I think I found say, it quite like, A bald person makes you sick. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, John Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. No. I mean, for sure, out of these two movies, the man who wasn't there isn't the one I would describe as having violent yeah. reactions. To, yeah. So. Um. Yeah. I especially. Yeah. I've always. I've like. I really. I. I think about haircuts a lot. Weirdly, because like I do. I really enjoy a haircut, especially one. Where, like, I'm just present for the process and I don't have to make small talk or conversation. Like, if I have a stylist who's, like, really gets it that, like, I'm not feeling like chatting and, like, just does the process, I always, like, really enjoy mm-hmm. that, like, quiet meditation period. Like, I was, like I can't have headphones on, so I'm not listening to anything. Um, I, I get my hair cut at sports clips and I don't care <laughs> about sports, so there's nothing on the TV that I'm going to be engaged by. Um, and I've always had like very, I've always had like very thick hair. So I always like, they, they'll often comment on how much hair I have. And, and yeah, it is interesting. Like the, I, I feel like I've been to like an old school barber, like once or twice. That's but, I mean, um, it does, it sounds like Ed Crane would like both working with you and maybe yeah. working at sports yeah, clips. Yeah, no talk. For <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Although I yeah. don't know if you would enjoy sports clips. That sounds like maybe no. like, <laughs> like the purgatory <laughs> he, he went to. You're right. He would yeah. not get along with the other stylists at sports clips. I don't sure. care. <laughs> I, I like, Andy, that you, you're like, I don't like sports, so I'm not worried about TV <laughs> as if it's like a sports clips as a sensory deprivation tank for you, where it's like, I'm I'm so unbothered by sports paraphernalia. It just bounces right off me. That I don't even notice yeah. it. Um, People there... talking about whether LeBron is the GOAT definitely <laughs> bounces off my ear. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I say no, I mean, he's part... a human. Sure. sure. Uh-huh. I mean, there's the, the part I most like reacted to this time that I like really felt in my gut is when he hires the second guy. And I was like, I thought he would be quiet, but turns out he was just nervous and he likes talking. A lot. Yeah, yeah, that's so like, funny. That's, that's like a classic nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the scene, just talking about scenes that you remember from it. Um, I'd only seen it once. I feel like we talked about the Coens a few times, so I've explained before this insane way that I watched a lot of Coens movies for the first time, where I had just um, Hail Caesar was about to come out, and I was like, oh, I'll just watch. Like, like I was seeing it like in a day or two, and I was like, in that two day period, I just in a marathon watched every Coen's movie as like the first time I watched a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so like I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen man who wasn't there since then. And it was a bit of a jumble, but like, as I was watching it, things came back. But the thing that I always remember is when the guy, he, when he's cutting his hair and uh, he's like, it's growing back. And just the idea of like cutting hair that doesn't stop growing was uh, always something that stuck with me. I completely forgot about the Scarlett Johansson stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, we probably have talked about this, because this, the first time I watched it, felt it 
somewhat similarly into right before Buster Scruggs came out. Mm-hmm. Not over such a condensed period of time, but I, I watched I, over maybe like a couple of weeks, the four that I hadn't seen at that point were this and Hudsucker Proxy and then Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. And I do... The one that I came out of that being like, oh, this one is just as great as anything that they've done is Hudsucker Proxy, but I do feel like I am retroactively a little surprised that I did not feel the same way about this one. Like, I like this movie now, but I feel like I was should have been even more primed to like it when I was 20. Yeah. I think it's kind of a movie that um, maybe doesn't uh, fare well, like in a double or triple feature setting. It might, yeah. like it might be something that yeah. I, I think it's it's some I think both of these movies for der- very different reasons are um, super hard to remember the ins and outs of. Yeah. Um, and I think that that makes them great to rediscover. I mean, I watched this um, just a couple months ago when we started the podcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I still there were still like many aspects of it, both the plot and lines from it um, and shots that I straight up did not remember. And it was mm-hmm. a joy to to yeah. reappraise it, like rediscover it. Yeah, I had an ecstatic rewatch this time. And, and the main things that I was just really like savoring were just there's so many scenes where like one character knows one thing and the other character mm-hmm. knows other information. But yet mm-hmm. they're talking to each other and they're both trying to find out things from each other and it's all playing out in real time but like just you know like the the pause after Gandolfini and uh Billy Bob light their cigars and you're just like what is Gandolfini about to yeah. say right. and they're just looking at each other and those actors can just like kind of just like play eye contact back and forth and you're like you know one of them knows that they both are keeping secrets from each other and it's mm-hmm. like how are they going to bridge this gap it's it's so the dynamics of like every scene are so exciting if you if you think about it that yeah. way. Yeah. 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 And, that, and like the scene at the end where Billy Bob is like after the car accident talking to the police and he keeps giving him the wrong information. <laughs> They're like, no, this thing, not right. the other guy. They have the story reminded, all settled, right? Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me because I just uh in, in us doing this, I was like, there were a few Coens that I wanted to rewatch. Um and I didn't get to rewatch all of them, but I did rewatch Blood Simple which I completely went head over heels for this time and also has that thing of like everyone thinks they know something about someone else, but they have like one detail wrong and they're just acting on the impulse of the wrong detail. And uh, it it completely works in um, blood simple, like in a very satisfying way Mm -hmm. where it's like, uh, she do- she kills who she thinks is uh, Dan Hedaya instead of Emmett Walsh. Great scene, um, but not to talk about Blood Simple. Yeah, I mean it is interesting thinking about. I, Blood Simple came up for me in thinking just because I watching Mulholland Drive just because I was like, oh yeah, who are the people who have worked with both the Cohen brothers and David Lynch? Because Hedaya is of course in Mulholland Drive. The yes. I mean the only per- other person who came to mind immediately was uh, there's the very brief William H Macy cameo in Inland Empire, Inland Empire but there yeah. mu- I, I well, guess yeah. Nick Cage is pretty close together sure, yeah. in um, Wild at Heart and uh, Paul, yeah Paul Fischler who plays the guy who gets uh, spooked by right. the uh, guy right behind Hail the Caesar. yeah he's yeah. he's wonderful in Hell Caesar yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's more. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess I'm that's sure the other thing about talking about the two directors is that they did 
win the Palme d'Or in back-to-back years, because uh, yes. Wild at Heart and Blood uh, Barton Fink are the two. Yes. Which, like, it, um. it's after that, it's they win, and then Tarantino wins a couple of years later, and since then, they, I think the only Americans to have won a Palme d'Or in, like, the 30 years since then now are Gus Van Zandt, Terrence Malick, and Michael Moore. Right? The three guys? Yep. Hey, yeah. Those are, those are our, our best. The three guys. Right, yeah. We can't give them any sort of, yeah, any sort of higher <laughs> yeah, level. They don't have anything in common. <laughs> Except Actually, they're all the three guys. Yeah. <laughs> they are the three guys. Yeah. It, it is funny to go from, like, because obviously, like, what you said, Jesse, but also before then is uh, Soderbergh. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. uh, right. Sex right. Life yeah, they're thing. really, like putting their crown and like these are the ama- major american filmmakers working right now and then they uh they stop but don't uh, raising arizona and wild at heart kind of feel like like mirror films i love those yeah, movies a I'm, little I, bit, yeah. I don't think i've connected with i mean honestly with i've probably connected with those films more than any of those directors other films like just yeah. amount of rewatches you know and, and just the amount that it just I like those characters so much. They're so passionate, you know, in yeah. both those yeah. films. Yeah, I haven't seen Wild yeah, I mean, Heart they do in seem so to long, be... though I, I loved it I when guess... I first did. Yeah, it's a... I guess Lynch is, Lynch is like a little earlier, but they both do seem to seem associated in my head of just like that mid 80s, mid to early 80s, just like early American independence. Right. Just like yeah. they sort of come from that same claw. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah. Lynch is kind of like 86 with Blue Velvet is the like, oh, this is now who David Lynch is, is where yeah. that kind of comes into place, even if he had been making features since Eraserhead. I thought you were going to say yeah. uh, mid-50s in terms of just, like, the concerns <laughs> of sure. the directors. Mm-hmm. Like, the, I think in both cases, there are directors who are sort of avant-garde or 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 you know forward thinking in terms of like the stories that they're trying to tell but they're also sort of steeped in americana and film history and and putting their own spin on on like what it means to make a hollywood movie you know despite their independent mm-hmm. uh bona fides they also like are sort of in conversation with with mm-hmm. the movies of like the 50s mm-hmm. and and all sorts mm-hmm. of other eras too i don't know yeah, they get, they're both like heavy sort of middle American patina, even if they both go about it in very different ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, because yeah. I hadn't seen Man Who Wasn't There in a while, um, but one of the Coens that I rewatch all the time is True Grit. Um, and I think True Grit is maybe for me their best like approximation of a genre of like an era, but Man Who Wasn't There in this rewatch, I was like, this I actually should give, like, a lot of credit to. And, like, the subversions of, like, using all the Beethoven music, I think, is so genius. <laughs> and, like, Burwell's work on the score, obviously, is yeah. incredible. Mm-hmm. Th- this trial of Ed Crane Q is is one of, if you, because yeah. um, we went through the process, for our show, we made some original score with this uh, with our sure. friend composer, Dan Romer, who, like, does, like, Lu- well, sure, yeah. Luca and Station Eleven and Beasts of Southern Wild. And so we... We wanted, you know, whatever he's doing to be in dialogue with Carter Burwell's music. So we listened to a lot of Carter Burwell music. And, and the music from this film really is it, just exceptional. You know, when yeah. when Shalhoub goes into that final, what do you call that? Like when he... Spiel. His final spiel, yeah. right? Yeah. 
the music just closing kicks. argument. Yeah. Oh my god, yes, the music yes. kicks in and it's just it's mm-hmm. it's uh, what just what you say, Jordan? What's the adjective you'd use? Revelatory. It's revelatory. Sure, That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you talking about the cue like when he's uh like in the in the in the court or when he's yeah okay when he talks about the modern man yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean right because there's yes. it's when he's like trying to bring back the thing he was gonna use for McDormand which I think I think in the context of the trial it's supposed to be an opening argument I think he has not talked to that point and it just ends right. up being the end of the trial because. As he's finishing, uh, Michael Bataluco runs in and he calls for a mistrial, but then uh, can't, uh, won't actually do the second trial. Yeah. It's one of those pieces of music. It's like I challenge you to put it on your headphones and walk down the street and not have things sync up to it, you know, or mm-hmm. suddenly become poignant. It's just, it's killer score. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe could we talk about how good the score is for Mulholland Drive also? Please, yes. Absolutely. I mean... A yeah. great, a great score and a great performance. A great performance. Yes. Yeah. This is another one that I hadn't seen in like over a decade, um, where I remembered when I saw it retroactively, because I in my head I was like I think it was like 2009 or something, but then when they're at Club Silencio and they're singing, uh, she's singing crying. I was like, oh wait, I think it had to have been like 2011 or 2012 because it was after I saw the movie 5050 where there's a crying by Roy Orbison needle drop. And when I watched um uh Mulholland Drive for the first time I was like, "Oh, it's the fucking 5050 song." Mm-hmm. When I was like, you know, 18 or whatever. Yeah. And uh the 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 big thing obviously like the scene where Fischler is describing his nightmare and then walks behind and the bum comes out. I remember my brother, my older brother telling me that it was like the scariest thing he'd ever seen. So it had built, been built up and he was like, I had to turn the movie off. I like had to come back to it when it was daylight out. And then I like watched it. And I was like, it's not that scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you're really not like, expecting oh. it, it's, it's yeah, quite yes, something. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The first time I saw it, I was like very affected by it. I didn't turn yeah, it off because I, I was I, watching with about other this. people, but yeah. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I forget in which episode directly, but I'm not, I'm not a person who gets scared at movies that often, no. but David Lynch movies scare me every yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Like uh, very specifically, like obviously the, the lady behind the dumpster is scared me a lot, but also in blue velvet, I remember the very specific shot of them all laughing at the party and then all of them disappear also really getting to me just like giving me the heavy heebie jeebies mm-hmm. i don't know even why it's like sort of indescribable i mean there but as you said earlier jordan i like there is the similarity between both these movies and both of these movies i'm like i had a picture of just how they were structured and in both movies i was like oh this is a, these are things that happened in the last 10 minutes and then i'm like no this is kind of the entire back half of the movie yeah like in my mind silencio happened like yes i thought that was the end, the end of the end, movie when i was uh-huh. watching just it. For like 45 minutes after yes. silencio mm-hmm. happened. but and this is also i don't want to throw you under the bus andy because this is an off my <laughs> conversation we had but when i was yeah. saying that i was about to watch Mulholland drive yesterday as we record this yeah you were like good luck it's a long one yeah. <laughs> and and when I, and i was like oh it is like i saw the runtime but i think it, like, we should say it was like midnight or whatever when well, you yeah were it about was like 10 p.m i yeah. was about to watch it <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but this is also just like remembering like you're saying Emilio the club silencio thing in my head I was like well that's how it ends like they hear that they get the key and open the box and then obviously there's so much after it but it is like exquisitely paced and like 
it's hard to not think of it as the most uh, digestible thing Lynch has done outside of Twin Peaks. Like, right? You there's the famous story of uh, Wild at Heart winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and everyone boos. Right. And and just the next, like, you know, <laughs> two years later, you also have people booing uh, Firewalk with me at that premiere. Right. Well, sure, yes, yes. Received, which we sort of yeah we've talked about Firewalk about with me. His, yeah experience um but those are also like very extreme movies wild at heart is maybe with the reservation of like i've not seen elephant man or eraser head or um lost highway but i did get to see uh inland empire at the when they were doing the restoration uh, mm-hmm. that was around last year for the first time and i had sort of pre-gamed earlier in the year with wild at heart for the first time which like completely rocked my world yeah and i think that movie is just outstanding but it is like it's incredibly extreme, and like I, it's hard to not like sympathize with the booers that can. Like sure. obviously, I would not have been doing it, but it's it's a very harsh film, and this one with its you know nightmares quality and the running you know just general lynchiness of it, um, it is it, it's it's still like a very digestible movie. You have this incredibly emotionally. Uh, investable performance mm-hmm. of Naomi Watts, yeah. I think, where it's like hard to, like it's a very sympathetic film to her uh-huh. and to, to Laura Haring. Yeah, and, it and, was. I'm um, speaking. Oh, no, can, uh, I was just gonna say it was weird watching uh, Mulholland Drive this time because it must be the like fifth, sixth time I'm seeing it, but this was the first time where you're right that there still is like stuff where I'm like, oh yeah, I don't. It's hard to remember the shape of this movie, but in terms of, like, understanding what is happening in the moment, this was the first time where I was like, oh yeah, every single moment I know exactly what is happening and why, which was surprising for this film yeah. and for Lynch in general. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned that it's the most, you said it's the most um, uh, digestible um, next to Twin Peaks. Um is it true that this was that this was created as a TV show pilot? It was. Yes, I was yes. trying. Yeah. I was. I, I was gonna. I was gonna ask that. Yeah. Also, so it I was, was. I did have the thought watching yes. this movie this time, being like, I don't know what this looks like at the time. So what I was what, wondering this, this time was, I was like, clearly, like almost because uh, you know, I think the pilot would have. I think it maybe was ninety minutes, but it would. I think been it was a two hour. That. I think it was. Yeah, it was a two hour. Really, up, I think. So. Maybe because sure. I was watching this time, it, but is it like, like a two hour? My understanding feel... is the point where she turns the key and the box opens, or whatever, is like the departure or what of, of maybe where the pilot ended and where the the Interest. add-on. Maybe stuff that they let him I felt watching it this time, and I don't know this, but my sense was it felt like even before that. That was kind of my impression in the past, but I felt watching it like most of the Watts. Uh, 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 why am I forgetting your name? The other lead of the movie, uh, Herring. Yeah, most of their stuff together felt like it was probably done after the pilot didn't get picked up, though I could be wrong. Like, there's just like a lot of that stuff, like, so specifically ties into that coda in a way where it doesn't feel like it makes sense if he didn't know he was going to do that. Though, you know, it's hard to tell at any given point what David Lynch thought he was doing. 
sure. Did you guys read the Wikipedia? I don't have the only research I did is I read the Wikipedia uh-huh. production history. They they basically said that it's like everything because like Nomi Nomi Watts's character is kind of in one mode, and then mm-hmm. she she enters this other like there's right. this whole other side of her character, and mm-hmm. it's basically that anything where she's like sweatier and more upset, right. like that's all that's all the new stuff, right. and that's what she sure. was she was the most excited about. It. She was like. I was actually a little scared that this was a TV show that I was going to have to play that character for multiple seasons with yeah. that level of dimensionality. But once it became a feature, I got to add this whole other, you know, uh-huh. uh, the like her. She she almost looks like a different human. Yeah. You know, and is yeah. is that new material? Um, is that sort of like put in throughout, or is there a specific cutoff no, point, like when she wakes up? After, yeah, it's after. I mean, there must be other new material, but the stuff where she like looks like a different human being is all yes. after she wakes up. The, you know, there's stuff like I assume he did not shoot a set. There's like a sex scene with nudity before that. Well, sure, that, that well, wasn't it for TV pilot. Shot it wasn't for the for, pilot. It wasn't yeah. for. It wasn't it was for, for, for ABC. ABC. Oh, it was for ABC. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah, who had aired yeah. Twin Peaks? So it was a yeah. it was a six week. Okay, they shot everything for ABC in six weeks. It's like the bulk of the film was shot in six weeks. Um, yeah. And they like specifically were really upset about the the shot of the dog poop. It was like a big problem. <laughs> sure. That's funny. Yeah, and Lynch said basically like ABC hated it, and then it, right, yeah. there mm-hmm. was like one night where this all came to him like really really fast he's like i just saw everything that we had shot from a totally different angle uh-huh. and i was able to see how it all tied together and it was like just a so kind of a joyful experience right seeing seeing how this mm-hmm. thing could be completed i mean it's incredible to imagine that something so coherent yeah uh, could be created like post hoc i mean separate. yeah because yeah, everything is everything lines yeah. up beautifully and yeah. mm-hmm. and it's not just a dream it's not that it was all just a dream i mean it's that there's there's intersections between right. the dream world and the real world and characters like where did like where did naomi watts get the money from like all that stuff right. is not yeah. is not easily explained by oh she yes. woke up and she's this different person um but yeah it no I, i'm just it's incredibly impressive yeah. that that's what he was able to to create that. Yeah, I mean, like, the club Silencio scene always is, like, really affecting, but did strike me this time as just, like, a skeleton key, both of, like, this movie and also just, like, how you watch David Lynch movies and a lot of similar and maybe not similar filmmakers in general of, like, yes, that, you know, these people are not really singing, it's not actually happening but also like in the context of art does it matter what is actually happening and you know the answer in that scene is clearly no because they are both affected as if there was you know rebecca del rio is on that stage singing because like there's no effective difference between whether it is quote-unquote real or not i agree i agree yeah that's exactly it i will say so like I do, like, you can sort of, when you watch it and you know the fact that it was, like, you can sort of see the mm-hmm. bones of the TV show yeah. of, like, there's going to be, like, a p- police procedural element. There's going to be all well, this, Well, yeah, like, Forster. He just right. is there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Also, but I was like, oh, cases, fuck. I forgot you can, about Forster. You can tell by, like, that's who why. the actors yeah. are and who's right. real tie. Like, you can tell, like, okay, you can see um, what I think... Robert Forster's bit would be. You can see that, like, Mark Pellington was probably 
one right. of the leads uh, I of think the show Fischler as well. ha- in interviews has said like he was going to be like an agent or something and like sure. was like going to be uh-huh. like, a recurring presence or I, something in the show. Um, yeah. I did forget about the Pellington scene also, which is really funny. <laughs> yeah. where he mm. is trying to stage <laughs> yes. this. It feels Coensy. I mean, to be, a little bit to, yeah. to draw the line of trying to like set up where it looks like this one guy killed these three people <laughs> in this room because he yes. keeps accidentally firing his gun. Uh, it's incredible. It's really it's really funny. I mean you when he sing, shoots the vacuum yeah. cleaner and it causes the, the yes. it's just so fire it, to start. Yes. That's, so That's another funny. it's funny that, you know, the thing they remember is ABC being like you can't have the dog poop. Because that's an obvious thing where you can imagine ABC being like, we can't put this on network TV. <laughs> I want to shout out to that vacuum cleaner operator is the stunt coordinator in the film, Charlie Crow, Crow, Crowell, Charlie Crowell, who is uh, most famously is like all the really intense stunts in any uh, Back to the Future film. He's Michael oh, J. Sure. Fox's stunt double. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I can kind of see the resemblance. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little guy. He's a strong <laughs> little guy. He came yeah. in. The, he went in the room. He wanted to help, despite his best, probably his best instincts. But what a face, mm-hmm. right? Like seriously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's interesting because there's a few of those, like him putting one of his usually non-actor collaborators uh, <coughs> Wait, on sure, screen yeah, with Bobby Lamenti too. Yeah. A perfect scene. <laughs> yep. Um, um, Billy Ray Cyrus. Perfect. <laughs> really. <laughs> A great, a great, I mean, I did keep thinking, I think it's just because the L.A. and, like, the sort of, uh, it's that late 90s, early 2000s, I guess Shortcuts is late 80s, but it did remind me of Shortcuts. It's this, you know, just the sprawling Mm -hmm. L.A. story. Right. Um, All these these characters that are just, like, obviously there's a lot more, um, you know, tying it together in Shortcuts than we get here, but it is... uh, Billy Ray Cyrus specifically fit that I think is just like a sure. weird guy to be in this good actor, right? Yeah, yeah. Like when I mean, like he's... we all acknowledge like yeah. super good actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. I can't speak to much <laughs> knowledge of him outside. I hear of about. Sure. I mean, just Hannah, in what about him? Have you ever seen him on Hannah Montana? No, yeah. no. no. <laughs> no I can't oh yeah, yeah. he's that, super good on that show. Yeah. And of course, I believe that he's her dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, of course, also funny that he said in the last like two years, uh, Mulholland Drive and David Lynch are why my daughter is so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yep. A lot of sense. That makes sense, Andy. Come on. I <laughs> would think that. Okay, okay. sure, sure. <laughs> um, you're seeing it at the point where it all went wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, this was my second time watching Mulholland Drive ever, mm-hmm. and I've I'm I have not seen a ton of other Lynch. Like I have seen, I I'm a big Twin Peaks person. Like I've seen all of Twin Peaks. I did a deep dive into Twin Peaks, uh, but I think of his mo- other like this. Like I've seen this, and I've seen Inland Empire, and I think that might be it for his wow. his features. So you're maybe um, more of a Mark Frost stan. Th- well, this is what I'm coming to. Is like yeah, my first time watching it. I watch it, like, at night, and, like, it's the only movie that I really feel has, like, actually, like, affected my dreams for, like, several weeks. Like, it, like, mm-hmm. it, like I've, like, felt the rhythms of my dreams or whatever became really influenced by this movie. It really just, like, tuned into something this way. And so I've always been, like, that one's, like, really powerful or whatever. This time, like, watching it, I was, like, I'm really busy. I 
definitely can't watch it at night this time. I don't want it like to let it affect me quite as much or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I watched it during the day and it did kind of like not work as well for me this time. Like I was I was purposefully slightly less engaged uh, into it. But like I there was a lot of stuff that I didn't remember and a lot of that stuff didn't really work that much for me. But like I do think like I, I might be a, a Mark Frost guy in terms of like I do think like some of the Twin Peaks stuff is like incredible and I love it. And like I I do think like the structure of 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 TV and having a, a creative collaborator work that strongly with him in the like fundamental like underlying like writing and creation of it like uh, seems to unlock something that like jibes with me a little bit more, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I do think this movie feels very Twin Peaksy to me. I think the first time I watched it, I watched it. Before well, there I it, it was Twin supposed Peaks. to be a spinoff at first, I believe. Like it really? was gonna be uh, someone goes to Hollywood. I forget which character from Twin Peaks it was supposed to be. So I, I and I definitely Audrey do feel some of these vibes. Yeah. Was it supposed to be Audrey? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah must that's be. what it would have been. So good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did. Yeah. This is. It's never quite been my favorite Lynch and it I I love it but it did the fact that like this time I felt like I had it so figured out was almost a little bit disappointing and that I'm like I'm never gonna figure out Inland Empire uh yeah. when you know I I don't it's not, I don't know that I necessarily like that movie more for that reason but it does kind of make it more exciting and you know, it's also, it is very affecting, but I'm not as affected by it as I am by uh, Firewalk With Me, which I feel like is oh, also, like, gone through very much, like, a, a, you know, I've had different reactions to it. Like, I had the, the first time I saw it, the, like, oh, this is the scariest thing that I've ever seen. I can barely watch this. Uh, and then since then have just tuned in much more to how horribly horribly sad it is yeah which also makes it very hard to watch my big connection with david lynch right now honestly is is mostly as like a weatherman and as a kind of art as like a as a sculpture artist with a youtube channel uh i was out in la in mount washington during the like the lockdown part of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and he really got every day he's making this weatherman video that was like actually the weather. Like if you wake up in the sure. morning, you watch the, he would always upload the video like before you woke up and you could just check in with him and he would tell you what the weather was going to be like that day. And, and we're also like, it was the middle of the pandemic. So he'd always say something. He always have like a little thing that he wanted to right. share that yeah. day. And you, and he, and then he was always sharing, this is what I'm building. You have these little sculpture projects. There's this video called checking stick from like, uh, 2020 that i really recommend everyone watch it's like incredible and just like yeah he was such like an influence to me just in terms of that time of like okay i can't leave this house i'm here in la he's also can't leave his house and this is just the way he's like methodically like finding his way through this and i I just i so appreciated it it really yeah it was really like a great uh gift for him to do that Mm -hmm. at that point in his life and it's just awesome. Yeah, he's so generous with uh, with the way that he shares his his daily routines and, mm-hmm. and his uh, his habits. Like he's someone who he has the same impulse to to connect as like a lot of people do through the internet. But he kind mm-hmm. of like makes his own internet. He like builds it yeah. to his specifications. I mean, I think back in the day there was like he had a website. I almost wish he would go back to that. But I also you know 
of all the social networks, I think YouTube's by far the best. Um, and, uh, Mm -hmm. and so like, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's also interesting, like his, his internet presence in contrast to, uh, like how much work he's done in the past couple decades. I mean, it's really Mm -hmm. been a long time without a David Lynch movie. Uh, and then, but then when, when, when the Twin Peaks season three comes out, Mm -hmm. uh, and you see just like 16 hours of like. Mm-hmm. David sure. David Lynch bliss that where it's yeah. like he hasn't really been you know if anything his his you know his his faculties have have sharpened and yes. he's taken mm-hmm. to digital cinematography yeah. so fluent fluently um you know I just it's just interesting like seeing someone whose work we're not getting a lot of but also someone who seems like uh you know zen to to la- to mm-hmm. use you know for lack of a better term uh, about like what he's doing with his in, with his life day to day. I don't know. There's a great yeah. uh, early, I guess, quote unquote, early internet. I think it's from like 2004, 2005. Um, David Lynch video of a uh, quinoa recipe of him making quinoa with broccoli and. Uh, I like know this. this is amazing, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> a great video and a great a great recipe. I've made the quinoa multiple times. It's very good. Oh hell yeah! Like, mm-hmm. aminos are a great hack. Um, oh yeah. When that video came out, bullion. though, there was nothing else like that on the internet, though, right? Sure, Will you yes, agree yeah. with that? Well, I I came to it a little bit later, um, just through like rediscovery. But like, yeah. I, I he had that he had um the sort of uh, the flash animation too, right? He was doing right. Uh, just I mean, but it's it all fits in with you know the uh, the early adapting to digital, like you're saying, with Inland Empire and. Mm-hmm. Um, just being ready to take on like whatever's new in that and in a, in a creative space like that where like seeing the opportunity of like essentially becoming a vlogger before there's vloggers <laughs> yeah but and he is like putting his spin on it where he's patching up his pants with wood glue or whatever yeah. right. totally. well How he's much- an artist he's like a painter yes, like, yes. like the a thing true, is like yeah. he he didn't he get his start with film because he just wanted to make like a painting that came alive. So he made projections that went onto a canvas that he was also painting. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, he just approaches it from a different way, mm-hmm. right? Than, yeah. than your well, average, yeah, and uh, not, right, not and like person, a, a true but... craftsman too. Like I, I always think yes. about the scene in Twin Peaks: The Return, where the computer comes out of the desk, or what? Like he pulls like the yes. wooden thing, like, and I mm-hmm. think about him like crafting that sort of idea. And I think I've heard some description of him like giving the direction of how that scene is going to work and stuff, and like how yeah he he thinks a lot. I think a lot about like practic the practicality of moving parts and how mm-hmm. they're all going to like come together and and all that and i think that yeah. like that it is, is an approach that he uses in both like in like crafts of like making tables and shit and then also like making, <laughs> making films as well but yeah and i just i just also want to say that like for all of that he also gets the greatest performances you can imagine mm-hmm. from the greatest actors in the world and it's, i just <laughs> think it's like i think that's the most important thing to like sort of grapple with 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 David Lynch is that mm-hmm. uh for all of the like sort of formal qualities of his work he's totally making the making the actors the most important people on the set and yeah, yeah. And that's just uh that's an uncommon skill in and of itself right which is maybe why like of the people who are like filmmakers who have that like very artistic sensibility he is like kind of the only one that is like crossed over to the mainstream at all that I can think of. I mean, what, like Steve McQueen has been a fine artist and 
mm-hmm. has been very successful, uh, but there's not a lot of them. Uh, Julian really. Schnabel. Sure, oh, Schnabel. The um, uh, Demolition Man director. Um, Robert Longo, Johnny Mnemonic, yeah. and... Uh, mm-hmm. What's that guy's name? Who directed... Uh, Demolition Man. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, I just I, directed I the Kanye video. Yeah. Marco. Oh, something? Marco. Something. Marco. Brambili. Yeah. Which Brand, Kanye big we fan. Know? Big fan. Uh, power. Power. Yeah. The one that they only right? finished yes, like the four, whole, the they only finished thing. forty right, seconds. Yeah. Of yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. It's a it's it's a perennial teaser. <laughs> they, running, they, ne- right? they never finished it. Oh no, yeah. that's the uh, yes. I write power. I do remember that now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you talk about this is just maybe a bit of an odd connected tangent of like a guy who is adapting to cool things like at the time and like working in a very interesting artistic space who continues to do it. Justin Thoreau, who's so good in this and like him in my mind, like obviously The Leftovers is incredible and his work there is (laughs) incredible. But very recently, he uh, was part of the Jeremy uh, Levick and Rajat Suresh uh round like t- uh hollywood reporter roundtable parody video very yeah. funny and he's yeah. like yeah. he's incredible in that and so funny and i was just thinking about how funny he is in this and carrying around the golf club the entire time is so silly uh, but he's just he's so so good and uh to be like a cool guy like <laughs> justin throw who's like a hip young actor like yeah i'll just make a bunch of david lynch movies i guess and like write mm-hmm. zoolander right <laughs> His performance in this is so good too because like there's just something about the way that he like looks he like looks for a second and then he reacts like kind of like yeah. a bird mm-hmm. like he's like he's just a very specific like I almost would love to ask him like is there like a specific director that you had in mind uh, that he's were, pretending to that be he's pretending to be <laughs> his hair funny, is yeah. so funny in it it's yeah, yeah the spiked it's hair, spiky yeah. And it feels like, and it feels thin, right? Like, it, like you sort of feel. It's like, very. Yeah. They are very pointy yeah. spikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's and with that with the shit, like the tinted glasses or whatever. The yellow yeah, glasses. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, very hip. I got, I got a, ch- uh, a chance to work with him on that show Maniac. Uh, I did mm-hmm. the, like yes. there's like an animated orientation video that they watch, and mm-hmm. that I I did I directed the like the orientation wow. video, mm-hmm. and so we're on like. I just say like all the stuff in that orientation video. A lot of it is improvised by him on set. Sure. You know, it was really like one of those actors who you, you can give him a script and put him in front of a green screen, and he just like yeah. find yeah. so many new things and just adds. Total, and that's yeah. all the stuff that is in the final cut. Yeah, great. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is a movie just filled with interesting guys. Yeah, I mean, yes. like I mean, lament the acting yeah. in it. Thoreau. Speaking of the left of uh, the leftovers, I was also watching this movie and being like, "Oh, David Lindel David Lindelof must love this movie because he obviously gets Thoreau for the leftovers." But there's several people from this who he gets in on Lost at some point. Obviously, Pellington, but uh, Patrick Fischler is in. Uh, he's sure, a Dharma yeah. Initiative guy. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting if you could imagine it. I bet uh, Lindelof and Lynch together could make yeah. something pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, right. yeah, huge fan of uh, leftovers and um, yeah, yeah. Lost I think especially too. yeah, especially like someone who like probably could do the uh, like a Mark Frost type sort of stuff and uh-huh. sure he could be a the, similar sort of the... stuff that Mark Frost brings to Twin yeah. Peaks. I feel like 
Because, yeah, if anyone hasn't read the Twin Peaks books that Mark Frost wrote, I do enjoy them. There's, like, he, there's a lot of stuff about, like, the history of Lewis and Clark in, in the Twin Peaks neighborhood. And, like, mm. I think it's really, it's a lot of really fun stuff. And you can tell he's, like, such a, he's got, like, very dad interests that I really enjoy. Sure. <laughs> To um, maybe get back into yeah, thinking I, I, about yeah. the Coen brothers and Lynch, it is interesting that as sort of like renaissance man as uh, Lynch is in terms of art, uh, visual art, it feels like Ethan Coen is that in terms of writing, of like he, sure. he was the one who was not credited as a director but was on the screenplay, but then also has written poetry and has written plays books yeah right books yeah and we find out at the end of uh um uh man who wasn't there that Mm -hmm. this whole uh movie that we've been watching is uh uh i don't know is it is epistolary the right word i mean it's he's he's been we realized it i mean yeah he's been writing right the narration is it's yeah the narration it's interesting to think about to think about like presumably there is connective tissue to that article that we're not getting but it does seem like he is probably leaving things out that we are seeing and also just let you it 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 feels like reading that article would be very boring uh as much as it is an interesting story and it is yeah. interesting to hear while you're looking at the movie, but you don't you don't get to the end and think like, oh wow, he's such a good writer. Well, yeah, well, I, he's... I gotta disagree with you there. I think it's beautiful. Okay. I mean, it is. I don't think it <laughs> would be yeah. outside of the context. I think it is very like you know, like talking about uh, the 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 mixing the hair and the dirt. There is like stuff that feels very poetic but i can't imagine that if you didn't also have the image and like we're seeing these things that you would get that you'd just be like what is this weird murderer on about well Hmm. yeah so yeah the billy Thorne character is like fascinating this was yes this is my first time seeing this movie there's like five or six poems that i haven't seen uh this was this was one of them um, I hadn't seen so, and I really loved it. Like I really yeah. like was like wow. I really feel like a lot. Like you feel it feels a very unifying film in their filmography. Like I feel like you can mm. pull a lot of stuff that like they touch on in other movies that is in this movie. Um, and like I do think like the character is so interesting just because like he is such like a strong like his refusal to like talk is like such mm-hmm. an important character choice, and then also to have him be narrating the whole thing and like you find out that it is this writing that he's doing and like mm-hmm. i find the, the whole like the whole is like a very interesting examination of like well like still waters run deep or like or do they like is this guy like like because he's like a strong silent type is he like really super aware of like life and what's going on and is he actually having like a deeper experience of it than everyone else and i think the movie like is an interesting examination of how like Mm. that's probably not that true especially like as you might think of it like i think about that scene where he does take where he takes scarlett johansson to the piano teacher to try her out and like the piano teacher's like she's like nice but like she's not really that talented and like i think and i don't see a lot of money here right yeah Yeah. well this is what i want to say I, this is I, the parallels to Lewin Davis are there. Yeah. This yeah. entire film, mm-hmm. like I think yeah. it's about a guy who wants to do something with his life and it, like he can't do it. Right. It well, is. He's the, in a. Fo- the... He says at the end he's in a fog, mm-hmm. and he's hoping the fog will be lifted. Right. Um, 
And um, I just was, I just want to say also that like I had sort of a thought experiment in this movie, like, um, cause this character is so, is so uh, like downtrodden, uh, but then Billy Bob Thornton is so beautiful to look at. And I, yeah. I just wanted to imagine like a thought experiment uh, is like, what if William H. Macy had played this role as like <laughs> sure. a return? Mm-hmm. I mean, not yeah. that William H. Macy isn't a handsome guy, but like, it's just interesting to imagine like a, a different yeah. take on the same material where the character's like a right. little bit more of a little bit more of a beta schlub. Yeah, and also just uh, like the voice would be bit, hugely yeah. different of like having the like Nebishi versus the like Billy Bob Thornton who like I'm sure has just like narrated documentaries or whatever. Yeah. It's so do you want the... like hot Fred McMurray or realistic <laughs> Fred McMurray? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so then like but then like that's like my like sort of initial take, but then I also feel like like the like maybe the reason that Billy Bob Thornton has to be the person who plays this role is because John Polito makes a pass at him. Uh, like, yeah. like is this whole movie mm-hmm. kind of like about that's such an interesting moment. like is this yeah. whole movie yeah. about yes. like a guy who's closeted or or is, right. or is confused in some way and he can't speak on it. Um, I, mean, I don't know. He, it's just it's, you just, know, a, it's I just a layer. He of almost subtext. like reads as asexual, if anything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like the man who was. It's like sort of a movie about a guy who thinks he's separate from the entire right. world. This and is I think Billy Bob Thornton, just like inherent southern like nihilism that you get from mm-hmm. him is a big part of yeah. it. Whereas if you cast somebody who's more inherently like, you would feel bad for them. Then it becomes like a bunch of other. Co- it becomes like Fargo. It's just like yes. another tale of a schmuck yeah. who just kind of didn't get what mm-hmm. he wanted. Or a serious it man. Is- yeah, it sure, is. Yeah, so yeah. I want to go back to the Lewis Davis comparison because I find that really interesting. Because then the difference there would be that Lewin is like surrounded by all these peers who are successful, and he's like, "Oh, but I'm actually better than these people. I have like, you know, I'm a real artist." Whereas Billy Bob Thornton or Ed Crane, he is like, uh, just like, "Oh, these pe- everyone around me is just like." not interesting they like just there's nothing going on and he's like i'm a like real like a a serious man like i'm a real like thinker i'm a serious person and then i like i understand exactly and And there's all these references to like oh it's from sacramento it's from san francisco and then he does leave this town where he's like i'm better all these people and the one guy is like no you're not you have no sense of what is interesting yeah. yeah, like if Ed Crane saw Fargo, I think he would be like, "This guy's an idiot." Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "I don't, I can't relate to this guy at all." I'm getting it all figured out. <laughs> right. Well, and then it's so funny because he makes he like makes that one active choice to like blackmail him, and then like everything just spirals out of control mm-hmm. from him making that well, one active choice. Like, well, yeah, the active choice to be like. And they pay it off a little bit with the Christopher McDonald scene at the end where it's like yeah. he's trying to sell him some like weird lawn equipment and he because he is this blank slate, he's just taking mm-hmm. it all in and not being able yeah. to refuse and right. the Polito magic worked on him so much that he's like yeah. I'm actually gonna get ten thousand yeah. dollars from the guy who's yeah. having sex with my wife. But something <laughs> that I took away from this this time was that um you know, Polito wasn't actually a scam artist. I mean dry right. cleaning yeah. was a real thing. Sure. Yeah. 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 And I think if he hadn't he been got killed, murdered, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yep. yeah, it might have, it might have yeah, been, would, he might have yeah. profited from it. Yeah, if he had legitimately found uh, ten thousand dollars, then yeah, he would have done great. 
that is interesting that yeah there there's a a world in which he is successful but not as like because necessarily of anything i guess that is it would have been what he was trying to do with scarlett johansson of like oh i'm not a genius but i can recognize genius I can see he did oh right, yeah i can expand outward from barbershop work right. to exactly cleaning clothes. but like it is yeah. like yeah. he did do it once successfully with john polito he eventually finds out and then he tries to do it again and it doesn't work yeah 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 and it's uh yeah, I mean it's it's a very interesting movie and all those. It's like oh, you could really pull at all its threads for a while. Yeah. yeah, I mean maybe a thread that I want to pull at is the the first Chaloup monologue where he's initially coming up he's with what he's going to use yeah. for yeah. Francis McDormand's trial, which is just so funny in like uh, Cohen Brothers is these like smart academic guys of like. Yeah, you have correctly identified an argument that certainly wouldn't work, but if it did work, it would just be like, yep, the legal system doesn't work. It has been broken by science of the, like, yeah, if you want to expand, you can't actually, the, you know, what uh, Werner Heisenberg found out, then yes, you can't know anything and you can never convict anyone. Which is yeah. obviously yeah. the exact same, like scientific matter that um uh gopnik is doing in um uh-huh. wait, is it Go- wait, wait what's the guy's name uh, gopnik? uh yeah. yeah larry gopnik uh larry gopnik oh, in is serious in serious man he's talking yeah. about the um uncertainty principle yeah in the uh the cat sure. yeah just, right and which is and also i just love how the double slit experiment is is yes. like is is uh expressed in the lighting in that scene it's like so yeah yeah, such an amazing Deacon's uh, Cohen's. Mm-hmm. It is gorgeous. I uh, I was really taken with the how good it looks this time. I don't know if I had the sort of capacity to understand <laughs> what like how it looks so good the first time I watched, especially like in a marathon with other <laughs> with right. just so much being thrown at me at that mm-hmm. time. Did you watch? But when it, you it's, were it's, watching it's, all of them, did you watch them all in order, or did you just pick? Yes, the, okay, I did go in order because so it was like. It was at the time, I believe, Hulu was really advertising uh, We've Got Every Criterion movie thing. Mm. Blood Simple, I believe, had just been added to that uh-huh. library. And I was like, this is timing up with Hail Caesar nicely. I should watch all of them in one day. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like... I can just technically so much fit them all you. in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, they're all short enough that I can, uh, the second <laughs> Intolerable Cruelty ends, I'll start Lady Killers and feel fine. Um, but, uh, I mean, you're right. It, it, it I don't was think a very... they go over two hours until Scruggs, and sure. if they do, it's barely. Maybe yeah, No yeah. Country for Old Men's like 125. Yeah, um, what is the, I, I'd like to see them... I, it's, that's easy to uh, look up on length, Letterboxd. Length, I mean, yeah. it's it's similar so to, like, Claire Denis of, like, Stars at Noon was, like, her longest movie last year, and I think there's only one other movie before that that's over two hours that she did. Um, I look up. Yeah. You always have to remember that what you're looking for when you want the list of their, their movies is Joel Cohen as director. Director, uh, yes. So yeah, if you go the longest movies, it is yeah the only ones over two hours are are those two. Uh, 
Scruggs and No Country, No Country is just sure. barely, and then like this Barton Fink and Big Lebowski are like just under two hours. Wow. And I guess Miller's is Crossing funny. is pretty close too. This time when I was watching it, because um, in just like looking up sort of contemporary reviews, there's someone, um, I'm forgetting their name for Variety, uh, um, in any case, uh, they're talking, they they just mentioned how, and there was a few other reviews as well that mentioned the humor, and in my mind, I didn't really remember it being as funny as it is, um, but just like the small things of, we're saying of um, how Billy Bob fits in, or how Ed Crane, rather, fits into the sort of Cohen bozo mm-hmm. lead oeuvre uh, mm-hmm. of like you know as I think as Emilio pointed out at, at the time that like Macbeth is the perfect <laughs> Cohen right. as like the yes. ultimate guy who couldn't mind his own business and like yeah. bit off more than he could right. chew and I, I just, just kill this at, one guy everything will all yeah, work out everything will be fine <laughs> <laughs> um, this isn't gonna spiral but, uh, out of control <laughs> yeah I mean and not to keep talking about Blood Simple but there is a lot of Macbeth in Blood Simple um, sure. Yeah, uh, but uh, just how he's like, he is a, like. I mean, Shalou lays it out perfectly at the end that like he doesn't recognize Beethoven. He's like, "Did you write this?" <laughs> when he uh, when she's playing Beethoven, and him just like thinking he's got it all figured out of just I'll be quiet and like get through all these problems. And I think um, <clears throat> McDormand, who we haven't really talked about, I think is so good, and especially that <clears throat> scene um, where they're trying to figure out like her alibi or whatever. And Billy Bob's like, uh, well, yeah, I, I killed him. She right. was cheating on him <laughs> yeah, right. and her face throughout that entire scene oh. is just like, you're saying, you right. were saying earlier about the reactions of people to what, like they know and what they're hearing versus what other characters right. know. And which is, a, and she's a silent. Funny... She's quite, it's such yeah, a tender, it's such a right. tender, uh, reaction like and yeah. does she even have any she has barely any lines i don't think and no. his, yeah, his, his, he in the movie after that right like, yeah like, i don't think i, he, I don't know he might talk about yeah i was just gonna say he does not notice that she figures it out there because he then later in the narration is like oh did she just kill herself because she finally figured it out and it's like no she obviously figured out you were telling yeah. the truth when you said it and he yeah didn't yeah. register for him He's not a person to, uh, like, just draft that whole cloth. He's, like, not that creative. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like he he talks about how, like, oh, we didn't really ever know each other very well. And it's like, no, she knew you. You didn't know her. Right. Yeah. Even though story you were the quiet yeah, one. Is like, yeah. Can you just yeah. talk about the coolest thing in this movie? He's The narration is he's looking at her asleep on the bed and he's telling the story of them meeting then the it's like the the vo actually gets overlapped by the sound of the phone ringing in a way that like yes. really stands out it's not the way that usually happens in movies and you're like okay the phone interrupted the vo he goes answers the call mm-hmm. it's gandolfini he goes meets gandolfini kills gandolfini mm-hmm. comes back sits on the bed and continues the vo from exactly right. where he left yeah. off in yeah. the story it's yeah. incredible yeah. i was it's scre- really i perfect. was screaming watching yeah. it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah oh and, my god and it's like the most uh, like it's the most like plaintive, like sad observation on his relationship, and then it's yes, yeah. it, those two pieces bookend him, like taking out like quiet, like dispassionate revenge on the man that she was sleeping with, 
Um, but I almost think that like I think another thing that I that I took away from this movie in, ret- in you know in reference to that is is how much he loves her. Uh, like yeah. spe- in the dream sequence or the you know the you know hallucination sequence when he's knocked out, like how much he appreciates her coming up and tearing up the guy's flyer and and kind of like mm-hmm. being the being the alpha in the relationship and yeah. Uh, yeah and like it's and the question for me is like is that a dream or is that a memory uh-huh. um, like is that something mm-hmm. that happened like a year yeah. earlier mm-hmm. or something like that I don't know I just that like the 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 sort of her showing up and you realizing it it's a dream and then like you know the sort of emotional sweep of of what he's going through kind of being laid bare in that sequence is um is you know pretty astonishing and and you know it's like i i think uh like i said before the movie is so cool because because it's so reserved you kind of see new things in it like when you Mm -hmm. every time you watch it yeah yeah and i think like the scene that uh ray mentioned it almost speaks to like his headspace of just like well i did that and i got away Mm scot-free and it's like that's not gonna come into play at all it's just like that was just a blip in what (laughs) my plan is yeah and yeah uh, and to what uh to what uh jordan is saying there's like an element of that last scene sort of him having the realization of just like me not participating i thought was just like my brilliant strategy to like make it through the world Mm -hmm. and i'm one step ahead of people but i did not realize until this moment maybe that i was the beneficiary of other people taking care of me like that that's beautiful yeah i really appreciate that Mm -hmm. yeah can i ask now i think maybe the reason that i thought that other than timing that i thought that uh this was the thing that happened instead of to the white sea is because i think you maybe talked about this a little on the first episode and maybe have more sense but like james gandolfini in this movie feel he like is a character who the lead into the white sea could have met like explicitly Hmm. you mean he's a big guy no, like he literally, and, like the experience that he had in the war right, could right, have exactly. resulted in the, the, the war. Or, or, yeah, 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 no, he did totally. have, but he that he claimed that he could to have. have had. Yeah, right. Yeah, if that yes. was true, then yeah, like it's like he is claiming like that he's like that big guy from that first scene. Yeah, but no, totally. The timelines of this movie yeah. and Barton Fink and To the White Sea, and I'm sure mm-hmm. other movies of theirs are all just clustered mm-hmm. around this. Um, traumatic war experience that so many americans had Mm -hmm. uh, or or didn't have you know uh and but experienced um vicariously uh through movies and through stories they were hearing and stories they were telling um and the fact that like uh gandolfini that he stabs gandolfini with the knife that he claims that he stole japan yeah yeah Yeah. because it's like barton fink is also was it four four h right yeah, like that's a, he's like a deferral, like he didn't right. get drafted. Right. Well, yeah, and there's that moment now that's like, or you know, in retrospect, after you find the the reveal about Gandolfini's quote unquote war experience, where he right. uh, just like got in a fight, like doing clerical work, and was dishonorably discharged. And there's that moment early on at the dinner where they're talking, and it's like uh, McDormand's like cracking up, and she's like. 
you know, Ed, he couldn't get in. He had uh, low arches or whatever. Yeah. And there, it is like an odd scene when you're watching it as Gandolfini is like this big alpha. But in that moment, he is like, that's tough. Like, I get it. Because <laughs> he also has this experience. <laughs> yeah, that right. Like that's it. real. Right? Oh I uh, you know yeah. what? I hadn't connected that, but that's great. Thinking about yeah. it, thinking back on it, like he's actually saying that's tough because he wanted to get out there and mm-hmm. do yeah. all that do all yeah. that you know right like it, it reads as condescending in the moment but it isn't yeah i mean it i i think i only noticed it cuz it stuck out to me so much and i had no uh-huh. memory of uh, of the end of when it came came up i was like he was actually just like trying to have this moment cuz there is like i feel like maybe gandolfini looks down on him um his character but there is i i do feel a bit of respect i mean he turns to him right uh, right, as the initial right. yes, and in like, like in a I way got in bad with this guy, kind of despicable, but that does, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also isn't it kind of similar to Albert Finney talking to uh, Gabriel Byrne? Gabriel mm-hmm. Byrne, uh, when he sure. comes and says like, uh, "I think she's well." I guess they it's the yeah, opposite because he someone, doesn't yeah. know he's so he doesn't have yeah right. exactly he doesn't know that Gabriel Byrne's sleeping with um, uh, Verna. But right. it is a similar, like, heart-to-heart where it's, like... Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is, like, he should fucking suspect the guy a little bit. Yeah, know? I mean, like, yeah. Of all, the, of all the suspects you have, like, you're gonna, th- <laughs> you're gonna have... Okay, you've got the traveling salesman, and then what's your number two? <laughs> Apparently yeah. it's not... The guy who's the, the girl's guy wa- husband? Who, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are weird details so, like that. Like, because a thing I did think about this time watching the movie, I'm like... They have no evidence to arrest Francis McDormand. Like, that is, case isn't going but anywhere. She, she admits, she's like, I did help them cook the books. Right. So there is something to maybe they, like, right. the second right. they pressed her, she was like, I did it. Like, I, I cooked the books. Maybe. Right. But then they just, yeah. The, the the murder there is, like, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, oh, yeah. I, for her. I just wanted to add how good she is. I wanted to just mention how good she is in the wedding scene also. Like the wedding this. scene is yeah. sort of the point of maybe the most humor where they're talking about how much they don't like Italian people. And then it like cuts to the wedding and Michael Badalucci's like riding a pig. It's like the most. <laughs> I'm watching that. You know, like, that's yeah. training and rehearsal. Like there's, yeah. the actor does not just ride a pig like that with like two days of practice. No, no. Yeah. That's serious animal and human yeah. acting together. Yeah. As I love, one. I, yeah, I love how black the, the blueberries pie. The, the pie looks yeah. disgusting. So, yeah. yeah that like, is maybe like, the point of like most. Tar, like, like, yeah. It looks, it yeah. looks gnarly. Um, say, don't say those words, Ed. Yeah, don't say those words. <laughs> it's like Ed wasn't saying Ed wasn't saying much. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's completely pie drunk. Or, yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, the way the other characters perceive Ed is also very funny because, like, how quickly they like everyone just projects onto him uh, whatever mm-hmm. they want him to be because he is so like still and silent. Uh-huh. Like, it's, yeah, it's he does like, look. He looks like the Kuleshov guy. Like the he like uh, the original Kuleshov effect. I'm not uh-huh. trying to make oh. some high-minded thing. <laughs> sure. It's a joke. Like, uh-huh. like, like, but he is kind of a human Kuleshov effect, right? Like, yeah, for yeah, sure. for sure. Um, I do want to mention there is a flying saucer in this movie, which I think is very sure, cool yes. and very fun. Uh, of um, yeah. uh, Right, and and yeah, in the earlier moment with the UFO story about Gandolfini um, setting it up, I think is is yeah, it's a it's a really nice just little like. It's really satisfying. The yeah, you know. yeah, and that's almost also like another moment of a person in his life coming 
and telling him what seems like a crazy story and like they mm-hmm. love talking and then at the end he's being like i guess that was right i yeah. guess there was just yeah. another way in which yeah, I, I mean was being a judgmental asshole the the ufo scene is like maybe where i most connected this movie with mulholland drive and that thing i was saying of the the club silencio scene where it's like it doesn't matter what is real because like there have been dream sequences in this movie before that and you know like the the scene of his execution is just like shot in a way that is like so insane that it looks like a dream so like having that right before that is like it, you know in some ways feels like it could just be this like fever dream of him being like oh actually i could never have been controlled because there was these aliens here the whole time that were influence everything but it is just like you know, whether that happened or not, like, this is such a first-person movie that it is just, like, that is what he is thinking, and so that is, that's just what is important, whether or not it is an actual thing that happened or not. Yeah. And just, like, two movies with incredibly, like, powerful endings, where you Mm -hmm. have, especially visually, where this completely, you know, black-and-white movie is pure stark white in this yeah. room where he's about to die and then he says this like heartbreakingly romantic thing about his wife as like maybe she'll be there and i'll like get to tell her about the things they don't have words for and then it's like credits yeah and then in mulholland drive where she is having this terrible i mean nightmare scenario uh definitely um uh, uh naomi watts's character and she commits suicide and turns into a giant cloud of smoke, and then the movie ends, which I had completely <laughs> forgot about and mm-hmm. was was shocked by. It's it's uh, it's just so uh, obviously after that the the nightmare sequence of the old people uh-huh. chasing her through the yeah. house, and then just the the shot, and then the end. Yeah, it is like the last twenty minutes of Mulholland Drive will never not be surprising in terms of just, like, what is happening as as yeah. well as you can know that movie. Yeah. Um, I just want to say about the, the UFO that, um, for me, what's important about that scene is that it, it makes the ending his choice. Or, mm. or it, at least it gives him a certain uh, opportunity to escape. Uh, sure. Like, he gets, uh-huh. he get, like, all, all the doors unlock, um, and he has the chance to kind of, uh-huh. I don't know, get... I, I guess get abducted maybe and like maybe you know I don't or even yeah, you know just like yeah. walk around have the like um Richard kind dream sequence in a serious yeah. man ending yeah but instead he kind of turns around and he walks yeah. back um yeah like he doesn't attempt to escape he doesn't do the mm-hmm. thing that like John Goodman does in in raising Arizona mm-hmm. um right there's just something so uh you know resigned about about that beat that feels like, um, I don't know, maybe it's his guilt that he, mm-hmm. he like, uh, yeah, I think yeah. with that and like his final line about words, not knowing, I do think it is to a certain extent him being like maybe one of the few Cohen brothers characters who learned their lesson. Yeah. Like, like, you know what? I tried to escape my fate once and that didn't work out. <laughs> so I'm just going to take whatever comes to me now. Cause it, I don't think this is going to work out. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. trust these like literal 
space aliens. Yeah, I mean, yeah, doesn't when we first meet Shaloub, there is a bit where Shaloub keep like keeps trying to get him to say like, well, obviously there's no afterlife, right? Like I, that doesn't make any sense, and he just keeps being like, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean that that shot of the UFO at the end—that's such a crazy. Yeah. There's just, just like so many like individual images from the movie, like yes. obviously Shaloub pleading. Like, yeah, uh, there's one Desha. that really stuck out to me, and it is when uh, Gandolfini is about to cut the cigars, and it's just like his hand in the foreground holding the knife, and Billy Bob sitting down in the background, like just his sort of uh, his silhouette as like the shadows are on him, and you just see like the knife in the front. It is so chilling. <laughs> Yeah. but yeah and like i think both of these movies i guess if i were to pick out a similarity it's like they have good use of empty spaces they're both like they both have a sort of horror drawn to them of just mm-hmm. like every place only has like one or two people in it i guess except for like the courtyard or like the set on yeah in mulholland but there's sure. just mm-hmm. so much everything feels like it should echo yeah the shot of, just like the shot of the guy um the 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 guy from from Twin Peaks, who's like in the chair, he's kind of like the big, yes, like yes. the like, yeah. I guess he's sort of like the studio head or something. He's and like he's, the backwards man from Twin Peaks. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And he's sitting in that otherwise empty room, or maybe there's like one other guy standing in the background. But just the way that that space, uh, like, just mm-hmm. is, just is like a character. I, I hate to say that things are yeah. characters, <laughs> but there's just something about the way that that space kind of speaks for itself. In that yeah. shot, they put prosthetic arms on that on that actor oh, yeah. to, to make his arms longer. To make his arms longer, and that's why mm-hmm. they're posed, not moving. He's holding it sure. to his neck. It's those are fake fake arms. Wow. Right. Yeah, wow. and there's like the scene with the cowboy. Obviously, just like how mm-hmm. empty and dark that the is. The cowboy is really good. <laughs> Yes. The cowboy is so he's like, Who's that I'll actor? Have to come back a he's like a, he's the guy he, is, he directed the Loveless, right? Yeah, Monty Montgomery. He co-directed, who co-directed the Loveless. Yeah, the Captain Bigelow. Right. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Wow. He, wow. I feel like he passed yeah. away in the last like, few years. Wow. That's or like David not. Lynch and the Fablemans. So true. Maybe he's yeah. I mean, he he is like a producer. He produced Wild at Heart. He also produced the Portrait of a oh. Lady. The He's the campion. Oh, well, the movie. The fact that he's the guy younger than I thought he was. He's like sixty. But just the fact that he's the guy. He's the guy. I dropped my jaw. That's 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 so interesting. I mean, yeah. There, yes. There's always something like that where it's like this guy is actually. Yeah. He's a guy who had conversations with David Lynch like that all the time. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Where he's like, I'm going to give you this money. <laughs> yeah. But his yeah, energy and- as like an ersatz mob boss, essentially, and he's this very like genteel modern cowboy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's he's wearing, funny. Like, his- blankets. According to IMDb, the first thing that he did in Hollywood was that he worked as a casting director when he would have been looking at, he would have had to have been like a teenager and he cast Mick Jagger as Antonin Artaud in a, a movie called, in a movie called Wings of Ash, which is very wow. funny. 
And then, was that yeah, before or after it was performance? Like, it was it was shortly before the Loveless. Oh, so ve- that it was so very early after performance, probably. After yeah. Perform- yeah. Oh yeah, after oh uh, not after you mean Rowe after movie, performance yes, yeah. the movie, not after <laughs> yeah, this yeah, performance. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes, it would have been shortly after. I think. Um, to bring this back to the the can tie conversation, sure. yes. Uh, we so we talked a little bit about like what the nature of a tie for a film festival jury means. And I think we have no information, so we will just have to baselessly speculate. But I do wonder, what do we think the nature of this tie was? Do we think it was they couldn't pick which one they thought was the best direction? Do we think it was a split room where, like, some people loved Mulholland so and some the, people didn't? Like, the how do one we think thing it that we do have that also came from this document that Kellen put together is that apparently... We get this thing every year of like we know we don't know which movies will win which awards, but we usually know which movies will win something and also which actors are likely to win because yes. like They'll twelve hours back. before they start calling people back. So like yes. especially if you're not in Europe anymore, they try to get to you a little bit early. And so apparently at one point Billy Bob Thornton was called back to presumably win best actor and then they went oh never mind because <laughs> yes, they were giving them the, this director award which is because and that is the, that's the other thing that we have is they do say it was a very split room where the reason i think piano teacher won the grand prix and two acting awards it sounded like because they wanted to give it the palm but there yes. were people who were like no that can't happen and so they and I believe those, this those is- Go ahead, sorry. Okay. Well, there's um there was minor speculation that um uh Matthew Kasovitz pushed for mm-hmm. Benoit uh Majamel and right. the, uh piano teachers. So th- that I mean, could that, be the that sort sounds of sounds like they would have just like um, been friends, probably. Yes, yes. Uh well what are we the concession to yeah. him of like if we're not gonna give it the palm, yeah. <laughs> I gotta get my we'll friend in a yeah. award. That's the um, um that's why Emmanuel Berko ties with um Rooney Mara for Best Actress uh in 2015, which is the Cohen Brothers jury, because uh yes. Xavier Delon is like, we gotta give my friend an award, I think. Yeah. Or at least a person who I love. Uh yeah. which is funny to imagine that is just that jury with the Cohen Brothers is a very funny one to imagine. It's funny to imagine. Do they record? Do they record? Uh, their <laughs> I wish. We wish. We wouldn't. God. If they That's did like that, the we Saturday wouldn't have Night to Live do this podcast. Rehearsal. We just link to <laughs> yeah, one but... of those every week. But yeah, it's that is a funny jury where it's like it's them, it's Xavier Delon, um, Jake Gyllenhaal is on it. I know. Sure. Uh, let me pull and it And he up. would go on to work with Odiard, so... That's true. Yeah, and the Sisters Brothers. And then, um... The only... I mean, the only other big director other than them is Guillermo del Toro and Delon, and then it's mostly actors. It's, uh... Rossi De Palma, Hall, uh... Sophie Marceau, and Sienna Miller. Uh, and then, uh... A, a singer who I have never heard of, but I would imagine must have some connection with the film industry as well. So that, yeah, that's an interesting... And that that's one where 
you feel like they didn't get along. But yeah, I feel like the quality of this tie almost feels like it was, uh, we love these directors, but they kind of already have their laurels. Let's just, like, throw them into a thing where, like, there is some prestige to this, but, like, there we're not going to give either of them the palm again, even though that has happened plenty yep. of times. Because, like, um, I know several years later, it's not even the next movie that they have in competition, because... Lady Killers does get a special award for Irma P. Hall. Irma P. Hall. But by the time No Country for Old Men is in competition, uh, Stephen Frears is the president of the jury that year. (laughs) And he explicitly said, like, oh, yeah, No Country for Old Men, we just talked about it, and we're like, that movie's good, it doesn't need to win anything, it'll do fine. So they they were in that zone by then. And, like, uh... Do they win director again for Inside Lewin Davis? Now I'm trying no, to No, they won the Grand Prix. They won the Grand Prix. So it's another, yeah. like, we like this movie a lot, but not enough to give them a second poem. Yeah. But that's a great, I think that's a great laurel for that movie to have, as it sort of sure. peters out stateside, <laughs> at the time at least. Um, uh, mm-hmm. This, um, the year of uh, the 2001, the Palm winner, I don't know if we said already, was uh, Nanny Moretti's The Sun's Room. Have either of you seen Nanny Moretti, uh, a film, The Sun's Room? He, they call him the Woody Allen of uh, Italy? No, France. Italy. Italy, Italy. 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 Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, Moretti. You right. know, uh, I... He made Il Caimano. Um, and this is a movie about, about a uh, a psychiatrist whose son commits suicide, and he's dealing sure. with that. Um, sure. And uh, the... The buzz at the time was everyone loved it, I guess, and there's like we thought we everyone thought this would win the palm, and it did. Um, and then, uh, yes, as we mentioned, the piano teacher gets a uh, grand prix actress for Isabelle Huppert and actor for Benoit Magimel, and then a movie called No Man's Land by Denise Tanovich, uh, wins best screenplay. Uh, and of course, there's the tie mm-hmm. of uh, yeah, of Lynch. It does kind of feel like no few directors have ever fallen out of fashion quite as precipitously as Nani Moretti. Because, like, he is he's the president of the Kanjuri in 2012. And he's, you know, he's one of the biggest directors that, you know, he's big enough to do that at that point. He even like the the next to last movie that he had in competition is Mia Madre, which is like a show busy movie that John Turturro has a small role in. And that was in 2015. And like that movie maybe was received like more politely than like, we love this, but it was still like, yeah, this is a guy who everyone's happy to see in can competition. This is at the very least a fun movie. And then he has the movie, whatever, two years ago, that's at Cannes that just, like, everyone hates. No one has any time for it. And now it is, like, by the time this episode has come out, we will have talked about a new can lineup that he almost certainly will be in, because Fremo sticks by his guys, and I think of the guys who he sticks by, not even ready, it sounds like is maybe perhaps the single person who would be most offended if he didn't stick by him. And it's like, that movie yeah. is going to get announced and people are going to be like, oh God, another Nanny Moretti another movie. Nanny Moretti, and yeah. that's two movies away from one where basically everyone liked. 
Yeah. Right. It was yeah. Trey Piani. Yeah. Movie. Trey Piani. Yeah, just like um, and you know or you know maybe this one's a comeback, but sure. It does feel like um, it's being preemptively dreaded in a way that is rare. Yeah. And I do also want to point out. I don't know if we said this explicitly. Like the other American directors in competition sure. were. Of course, the directors of Shrek, I assume, are American. Yes. Andrew Adamson and Vicky Jensen. And, and then Sean Penn. Uh, Sean Penn <laughs> right. Uh, for, for, the for the play. Who, yeah, um, one of the few directors in the Can Good Graces who makes movies that are as dreaded as this Nightmare Ready will be. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Baz Luhrmann, not American. But it, not American, yes, but, but movie is making English. a movie with um, movie stars um, in English. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also, like, people, uh, contemporary sort of riding on the festival uh there everyone's like it's such a bummer of a lineup every movie's so like intense and sad or it's moulin rouge and it's like the most <laughs> like these garish sort of uh vibrant movies um and uh, but then also there's like the appeal of the red carpet at can obviously and all the people who walk on the croissette and it's like Nicole Kidman left early for Moulin Rouge because it was the opening <laughs> film. Jack Nicholson never showed up for the pledge. It's like none of these <laughs> big movie down- stars are here. That is a downer um, of a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the other big thing that I found that happened on the Quasset at the time was Swedish filmmaker Torkel Knudsen, uh, in an effort to promote his film Nakin, which means naked again, I believe, uh, he streaked. He was a streaker on the Quasset. Um, him and uh, someone else with him, and they got arrested. And it was just his <laughs> his way of trying to do sort of promotion. So it's like you're at Cannes in 2001, you might see a streaker. How did that not make it into the Mr. Bean movie that was on a Cannes? I know, carpet? I know, they should have done it. Yeah, I don't but, know if yeah. either of you know this. There's uh, Mr. Bean's Holiday, which is the sequel to the Rowan Atkinson film Mr. Bean. Uh, there's he goes to the Cannes <laughs> Film Festival because Willem Dafoe. <laughs> plays an artsy-fartsy director, uh, and they filmed, I believe, during the red carpet of yeah. Colossal Youth, which is uh, why the, we've done an episode um, yeah. about both films at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Has Mr. Bean done a lot of, like, you know, like, real-world, like, ambush type stuff? He doesn't do, yeah, like, Borat. I don't think he really does that. That's that's not the intent of that scene. Colossal Youth is certainly not mentioned in Mr. Bean's Holiday. They just just used it at the time. did that because they were like, oh, no one cares about this It's not like Jimmy Kimmel Guillermo on the red carpet at the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) I think he could pull it off, though, if he wanted to make a movie like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, God, if Bean and Borat met can you imagine? <laughs> Bean X Borat? Yeah. yeah. Do you want Bean and Borat, Andy, or Bean and Bruno? Which one do you think is better? Oh, or I, G, I guess. I, you know, yeah, I, I haven't mean, seen just... anything with Bruno in it, so I can't really speak that much to Bruno. Well, there's only, there's only a, it's, a, it's a small library. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we, you know, we like to uh, uh, make calls to action for, uh, you know, people who run festivals, especially Terry from oh, I feel like... Uh, yeah. If you're listening, Terry, you could. Hi- it's not too late to hire Sasha Baron Cohen and Rowan Atkinson to run yeah. the can red carpet coverage for this year's festival. <laughs> yeah. Post the awards, God. of course. Yeah, yeah. they could all. They, or know, be the. It could be one of them post the awards. One of them's the MC for the opening ceremony. Yeah, I think we um, need to see both of them give 
uh, dramatic performances opposite each other in a can film. A Frost Nixon esque. Mm-hmm. Yes. Bean yeah, Borat. Yeah. I mean, Bean doesn't really talk, so there are a lot of That's issues true. with that. No, no, so. no. Just do the, do the actors. Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. Oh, oh, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Not in character. Yeah. Right, right. Um, All right. Well, I think what, yeah, are there any, uh, any either any thoughts on uh, Mulholland Drive or. Uh, Man Who Wasn't There? Man Who Wasn't There? Re- closing thoughts, anyone? Uh, or shall we. Or general, you know, yeah. we can open it. General Cohen's thoughts as well. I'm sure well, you've both been steeped in the world. Yeah, I I just think there's interesting um, parallels between these movies that I um, are not coming to mind, but I felt like I felt them when sure, I was watching sure. them. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I mean, they're both just about characters lying to themselves sure. in a way. Yeah, and for me, it's just like. Uh, these directors are just so free, you know, they yeah. just, and, and really when we, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, even you talk about like David Lynch's like creative process, which he's been very open about and the Coens have a reputation for not being open about their creative process, but I actually think that's not true. They talk a lot about writing and, and I, I generally think the commonality is that like David Lynch is like, when I'm writing, I don't know what's going to happen next. And then I just reach into the subconscious I pull it out, I put it on the page, and then I kind of go with it. If it's if it's working at all, I try to trust it. And the Coens yeah. write in a very similar way. Yeah, where they're, they're intuitive. They're intu- These are intuitive mm-hmm. filmmakers who yeah. are who are very free, and are in a lot of ways. It seems like they're just they're kind of just processing what's what what they're dealing with. You know, it's like a lot of there's a lot of hangups of things they experienced as kids and things they experienced in uh, young adulthood that just seem to be. Kind of like when they reach into the subconscious, they they know yeah. what's there. You know, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. what experience did the Coen brothers have with a French man, and what ex- <laughs> yeah, and what they... experience did David Lynch have with a bum? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think you mentioned this earlier, Jordan, and I. What it, this is reminding me to echo it that I think the Coens are uh, very underrated as experimental filmmakers, and I think like you. Saying that that they have this, you know, very free process and are very intuitive. And there's, like, obviously a spectrum to this, what is, like, avant-garde or experimental. But, like, if you do, if you you can draw the lines, like you're saying, between them and Lynch in a very, like, that in a a way that isn't very basic. Like, I think there are very strong experimental tendencies in their work, uh, respectively. Yeah, Yeah, I mean... is 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 uh, Barton Fink any any like less oblique than a than a David Lynch movie? I mean, they sure. and like a racer head. Yeah, like, think about the two. Like, yeah. it's a guy in a room <clears throat> freaking out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with I'll say hair. that as <laughs> far as hair. with tall hair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a good call. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> put him back to back. As far as these two specific movies uh, in these directors' career, I did, like, go into the preparation for this episode thinking, like, oh, this is going to be a weird episode to do because, like, I like The Man Who Wasn't There, but it's, like, a very good Coen Brothers movie, whereas Mulholland Drive is this, like, epochal work that feels like it is going to overshadow anything it's put next to. And I definitely found that to be the case less than I thought, just, like, looking at them both next to each other. You know, as I said, like, it was a a slightly weird experience of watching Mulholland Drive, but I am, like, 
I still see why that is the perception of that movie, even if it is not my favorite of his movies. Yeah. But it is like, yeah, I, they I, they I certainly, I, it like the man who wasn't there did also just like feel looking at them, like equally a strong work in the director's ooze. Could I, yeah. could I make, could I just say one tiny little thing that I noticed on this watch is mm-hmm. uh, in the opening titles, um, they have the, 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 um, the title cards of, of the actors. Um, and then the shadow like is like, um, is like digitally kind of uh, yeah, projected yeah. onto yeah. the onto the barber pole, was... and then when it says uh, "man who wasn't there," the title disappears, and then the shadow lingers in a way that's like very obviously an intentional choice and kind mm-hmm. of a joke, and maybe it's yeah. he's a shadow. I don't know, but like uh, mm-hmm. just something I noticed. Yeah. Uh, interesting uh-huh. choice. Yeah, because certainly these aren't movies that have. To what Jesse's saying, similar cultural reputation. Yeah, like you talk about Mulholland Drive, and there is obviously like right. a ta- like a yeah. lot of discussion yes. and a lot of thought behind Mulholland Drive. Whereas with the Coen Brothers, people are like they made Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and then they made No Country for Old yeah. Men, and then they had <laughs> yeah. some weird period. <laughs> yeah, they had a weird period there in the middle, which is like sort of what your podcast is about, because the to the white right. is so much about why that weird period yes. in the middle seemed to happen yeah uh i don't know i guess i had a lot more thoughts about the man who wasn't there like there there is a certain thing where i'm where i'm just like if you just look at it plot wise there is a sort of element where it where it's like because i was thinking about the time period and i was thinking about them as both as these movies as like pre 9-11 movies so i was like there is a certain amount of like American beauty movie <laughs> about a guy who is just like on side of side of his station in life, looks at a young woman like sure. that sort of obsession in the man who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But obviously, one of those movies seems a lot better than the other one. Yes, but, uh, I mean, certainly there are those sorts of pre- preoccupations. But yeah, I think that's about it. Um, yeah. We have a segment uh, that we call special presentations, where uh, each of us brings. Just anything that we've uh, sort of uh, you, you want to get some eyes on. If you want to, like, say we've we've talked about it, the you know the, it could be anything. We've talked about wind before. <laughs> we've talked about movies, books, food. Um, so if, uh, we can come back to you uh, if, I, if either of you have something you'd like to present, um, and then we can start. Andy, do you have anything? Sure, I can start. Uh, I recently finished reading. Um, uh, a novel. Uh, it's called Vintage Contemporaries. It's by Dan Coyce, who's a uh, culture writer, editor for Slate. Uh, he also co-wrote the uh, the Angels in America oral history, The World Only Spins Forward, which I, I recommend a lot. Um, but yeah, I really liked this novel. It's... Um, you know, it's set in New York uh, in a couple of different time periods. It's the story. It's a story about friendship and 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 finding your place in in your chosen like creative field. And and and, and you know, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. And I really like enjoyed reading it and had a great time. It's a little. It's it's pretty breezy. Um, I do. It's it's got a fun time jumping structure. Um, and yeah, if you if you if you if you like any of the things, like it, there's a lot about art and stuff and and writing in there. So if you're interested in all that, I would definitely recommend it. It's called Vintage Contemporaries by Dan Coyce. Cool. Uh, I mean, yeah. I can just say, oh, Jesse? yeah, uh, that uh, I uh, for my birthday earlier this week was just like I want to watch a movie that I love with some friends. So I put on I'm Not There, which 
speaking of how movies fall uh, fall into directors' filmographies, that is a movie that I have always thought of as like, oh, this is the like the Todd Haynes masterpiece, like yeah. one of the greatest movies that a great director has ever made. And it had been long enough where I was like, almost no one else feels like this. I'm starting to forget why I did. So it was just great to watch it and be like, yep, I'm right. This is how I feel about this yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. It is and a just movie that, so yeah, no. wonderful. Yeah. I just, I, I've been thinking a lot about how that movie doesn't exist for a lot of people and I don't exactly yeah. understand why. Like you have like Batman and the Joker yeah, playing Bob right. Dylan. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, yeah, yeah, and yet it's not a movie that people love. I mean, I I I don't have uh, I wouldn't say that I have like favorite films, but I did put that in my like the four movies that are on my letterbox. Yeah, there's a thing towards the end as well. There's a montage where it's cycling through all the actors uh-huh. really fast, and it's playing that song "I'm Not There." That is yeah. just mm-hmm. like I, wa- I watch that like like every two months, yeah. just and and yeah. get completely uh, overwhelmed by it. Yeah, every and single Kate, time. Kate Blanchett is like yeah. un- probably it's my favorite yeah. performance of hers yeah. too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's one of it's the other movie that uh, both Michelle Williams and Heath Ledger are in as well, even yeah. though they don't share scenes. Which, yeah. that was the thing I found out this time, was one of my friends told me that uh, the Heath Ledger role was going to be Colin Farrell, which is interesting. Oh, sure. Which I wonder if it was that Williams has already signed on, and so it was easy to go to him and being like, mm-hmm. oh, you're a big movie star who can take this role. Yeah. It would have been great to see that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly in the like right after Miami Vice to have like another mm. huge performance yeah, with, with a huge director. Sure. After that, though, it does also being in that period maybe explains why he didn't end up doing sure. it. Yeah, just take a break, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have one, Amelia? Ooh, I've been thinking. I've been like weirdly busy with a lot of stuff this week, so I haven't been listening or watching to a lot of stuff. But I'll plug a song I've been listening to that came out recently. Uh, uh, Larry June, The Alchemist, Slum Village. Uh, Larry June and The Alchemist put out an album called The Great Escape, and Larry June, The Alchemist, and Slum Village have a song on it called Orange Village, which I think is very good and people should listen to. Cool. Um, I recently watched the Mike Lee TV movie Nuts in May. Uh, which is about this sort of yuppie-ish, uh, eco-friendly couple who go out to have a vacation and have it disturbed by other people who are there <laughs> to ruin their perfect idea of, like, paid-for nature. Um, and it's it's very funny, I think. Uh, has a very good central performance uh, of this guy. Um, his name is Roger Sloman. He, uh, I-, I said it on Twitter that he reminded me of Paul Bartell, and I was thinking of um, eating roll a lot while watching it. Uh, but he is like this very hoity-toity guy obsessed with nature. Um, and has a he breaks at one point. And it's a very, like, going from anger to crying and, like, screaming at strangers. Uh, a very shocking performance. Uh, but also just a very, very funny movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I, I, either of you have any thing you'd like to present? Um, I'm reading the devil's chessboard. Uh, it's a history nonfiction book about, uh, Alan Dulles, um, which, uh, is just, just doesn't cease to be shocking. And, uh, you know, however much of it is like, you know, 
maybe contested by certain people. I think it's like uh, a really like incredible uh, work of, of biography and American history. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's like just eviscerating. Uh, so highly recommend that. Not not necessarily a film related thing, but it's, sure. it's what, yeah, it's, what it I have next to my bed right now. Be. Yeah, so I'll, I'll double down on the David Lynch. I'll, I got three David Lynch things. It's so nice <laughs> today to talk about David Lynch. And David Lynch is, I mean, thank you guys for asking to talk about him because he's okay. such a huge part of my mm-hmm. my life and my mind. But I'll say first, I want to double down on that checking stick video. I think anyone who's an artist who's listening to this in any capacity, there's news you can use in this video it's highly applicable and and has a great punchline at the end of it um lynch on lynch this book i read this when i was a teenager it's completely changed mm-hmm. my life um and then what was the other one there was three david lynch things well i don't know what the second one is but i'll just say this lynch on lynch book uh oh straight story some yeah. of the things that you yes. guys were saying mm-hmm. earlier it really made me want to recommend a really open-minded viewing of straight story as just yeah. like a very on the rails, mm-hmm. like a uh, linear narrative film that is completely about like, if you get into David Lynch as an artist, mm-hmm. as a visual artist, you can see the way that this guy who's the protagonist yeah. of straight story is kind of like a, almost like an action hero version yes. of the artist that David Lynch right. kind of wants cool. to be incremental progress. Oh. Like, yeah. Just total commitment. Exactly. Yeah. Incredible. Have you seen Straight Story, Andy? I have not. No, it's been. I mean, that one. On that one would definitely. While. I yeah. think mm-hmm. could it's be on a Disney Plus, right? It's a Disney rated <laughs> Rated G. Yeah. Rated G. Yeah. And also, uh, yeah. also was in competition. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say from the Lynch on Lynch book, there's one story that I always remember. This as a, as a teenager, he invented a perpetual motion machine, and he went to the Navy to sell it to them, <laughs> and they explained to him why. Like it was totally insane, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And Santa but he's just that's what I love about the guy. He's, yes, just, he's yeah. got the confidence to be like, I, I solved physics. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and go knock on the door and 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 just tell them all about it. You know, he's that yeah. he's that dude. Yeah, yeah. And with that, uh, yes. Uh, I is there any um. Where can people find the podcast? Uh, yeah, tell us to the yeah. Let's see. Give us a little mm-hmm. more about the podcast. It, yes. Yeah, please, yeah. please sub- subscribe and listen to to the White Sea. You can get it on um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want a little version of what the show is? Yeah, that you guys are yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. for our for yeah. listeners. Sure. Well, I think you probably got a pretty good idea from listening to this, yeah. but uh, yeah. it's yeah. it's basically it's about. Um, it's a close look at the films of the Coen brothers through the prism of their unproduced screenplay to the White Sea. Um, Which is like a 89-page action movie. It's yeah. just Coen's in almost like pure silent mm-hmm. action film territory. And it's the biggest the biggest canvas they ever imagined using for a film. So it's, it's really interesting to see them just making a wordless action film. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um Ray's read the script and I haven't and uh, mm-hmm. every episode we read two pages and uh kind of act it out in our little land of make believe uh mm-hmm. and um we've really cool voice actors on the show Griffin yeah. Newman mm-hmm. plays the part that was originally going to be played by Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. naturally. <laughs> we have awesome, yeah. awesome music by Dan Romer and we've been all, all our guests are filmmakers so we've been uh this week we did a screening we had a guest on the show mm-hmm. uh, Z Beal and then we screened a film she made down. We're upstairs right now in a building. There was a gallery space downstairs. So 
we awesome. we yeah. screened her film in the yeah. gallery and then we yeah. recorded the q a we put it out today so we're, we yes. have a, a live aspect yeah. to our show we have also. another one coming up uh xander robin this is probably going to drop I, after that yes. but i but yeah. i would just encourage you to like check us out on social media and see like if there's any other stuff we have some really interesting people that are coming to yeah. our show into the gallery that are not announced yet yeah. that are definitely Very worth cool. paying attention to super yeah. excited about yeah them. Uh, it's a great, it's a very well-produced podcast. Yeah. It sounds nice on the ears. Thank you. Um, well, I'll say. I really appreciate that. Yeah. The, um, yeah. We've, we, I've had to learn a lot about audio and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, our friend yeah. Dan also helped yeah, us. Yeah, Dan Romer also really, sure. really helped us with the yeah. sound, yeah. The, making it sound nice. Yeah, yeah, I think we're like at the point now. And Ben Hosley and Ike Street Absolutely, sure. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're finally at the point now where like the sound of it is hopefully close to as good. We're uh, highly sensitive to that, so that's a, it's yeah. a compliment that, yeah. that actually uh, resonates. That yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, and then uh, either of you on social media, do you want to point people that way or or no? <laughs> yeah, you can follow. Either way, follow, follow, fine. Follow yeah. us on Twitter, but you know, follow you the shows on follow the shows. Twitter yeah, follow us Instagram. on Instagram or Twitter. Follow the show on Instagram or Twitter. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll TikTok. The maybe TikTok. Eventually. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Get Griffin to do like a TikTok dance. I mean, um, that sounds really sticky to me. Yeah. <laughs> I can floss. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, yeah we famously tried to get me to do a little dance on TikTok once and it sure. never happened. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Colin, wrap up the show. Yes. Uh, if you want to follow us, you can do so. The podcast at uh, Can I Kick It on Twitter and C I K I Pod on Letterbox and Instagram. Uh, if you want to or, email us any or questions, or go ahead. Can I? Oh yeah, TikTok. Yes, TikTok. we're also can yeah. I tick it with a T yeah. on TikTok. <laughs> um, I and I think there's Very one video on that account, account, right? Two maybe. Yeah. I don't think like we've that. ever uploaded anything. No, that's not <laughs> um, true. That's not true. There's there's sure. at least one thing I'm sure. Maybe yeah. Maybe we'll get some TikToks out of Emilio when he's at Can this year. <laughs> oh hell yeah. Um, uh, oh, yeah. But um, and then you can also email us any questions or comments at can I kick it pod at gmail.com. Uh, our theme song is by Tree Related, who's on Spotify and SoundCloud at Tree Related. If you want to donate uh, any money to the podcast, you can do so at ko fi.com slash can I C A N N E S I. I am on Twitter at Clatchley. Andy is at Andy T Germ. Emilio is I'm Laugh Alone, and Jesse is JCP Glick Weber. And with that, I will release our audience. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Thank you.